Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and I'm here to talk to you about football, right? Everybody's favorite topic on this channel. We talk a lot about sports here. Oh, no, we don't. But thank you for coming, and I am very happy to see all of you in the chat. I like to do these live as it stands right now because I like to answer questions and have commentary and cover things that I might not have covered as well as I would have hoped in going through the documents that we're going to look at today. So if you've got questions or comments, please feel free to put them in the chat. I can't promise you that I will get to them immediately, but I will try to flag them if I see an at hog law or if I see a question framed in the chat or a super chat, certainly I will try to put it on screen and I will try to answer those things when I get the chance. Other than that, a few disclaimers before we start today's topic. As you can see behind me, if I lean the right direction, we'll see. Michigan football helmet. I am a Michigan Wolverine. So you can disclaim my thoughts on all of this to your heart's content as much or as little as you want to. I am a fan of the Michigan football team. I'm, I have been a fan my whole life. I really became a Michigan fan when I lived in East Lansing, which if you know Michigan is the home of Michigan State. And as a contrarian, as I am, I, as a youngster, decided that I would be a Michigan fan when everybody was wearing Michigan State apparel to my school. Uh, and that has led me through a life of eventually going to Michigan Law and becoming a Wolverine formally. But it does mean that I am self-interested in the outcome of what we're going to talk to about today. So please keep that in mind as we go through the conversation. But I will try to be as unbiased as I can. I would also like to remind folks that this channel is made possible by viewers and listeners like you supporting us through Player or Patreon or through memberships on YouTube or Super Chats. And I include the screen at the front primarily to remind myself to track those things as we go through this episode. But I will say it again at the end, so hopefully I do not forget any Super Chats or anything else that people have put forward because I really do very much appreciate all of that support for the channel, for myself, for these shows, for these conversations. It means the world to me and I really appreciate it from all of you. Thank you so much. Now let's talk about what we're here to talk about. So on Friday of last week, the Big Ten Conference announced a violation of the sportsmanship policy by the University of Michigan football program. Now, if you weren't here with us for Scandal in Blue, the earlier video that we did on this on this channel, we talked about the Wild Stallions affair or the staffer on the Michigan football team named Connor Stallions, who apparently was putting together ticket packages for friends across the country to view future Michigan opponents in the season they were going to play to get the signs from those opponents that are called in to signal the plays for the opposing team. So if you don't know American football, and I do know we have a lot of international audience members here on the channel, the way international, the way American football works, especially at the collegiate level, is that you've got an offensive player, you've got a defensive play, the coaches call it in with signs, whether that's like baseball where you like tap things on your head or it's often pictures of celebrities and things like that. And so if you have a view of those signs as the play comes in, you can decode them over a period of time. Now that decoding process isn't illegal per se. Under the rules, we anticipate that some signs are going to be picked up and decoded when we play college football. But the act of going and videotaping other people's signs in games that you're not participating in is illegal. Now there's some questions there. You can see it in that earlier video that I had with respect to the way the rules are written. And I don't think it's a slam dunk case for the NCAA that what Connor Stallions is accused of is technically against the rules, although it's certainly against the spirit of the rules. And I, I'm fully willing to grant that and think that Michigan should in fact be punished to the extent that this is proven at the end of the day. 
and that there is a viable argument made that the that the actions taken were in violation of the rules as written. But before we get there, let's go back to the Big Ten because we didn't talk about the sportsmanship policy of the Big Ten conference in our last video because honestly, I have never seen a conference act when the NCAA has not yet acted in an NCAA-led investigation. Now, if you're not familiar with college football, again, let's take a step back here. The American government system is a federal one, right? So if I'm in Michigan, I'm governed by two jurisdictions. I'm under the state of Michigan jurisdiction. I'm also under the federal government jurisdiction. I can be sued in federal court. I can be sued in Michigan state court. Similarly, the way that college sports works is that Michigan football is in the Big Ten Conference, a conference of like-minded teams in general that play similar styles of football and play each other every season, give or take. And then that Big Ten Conference is a part of the larger national College Athletics Association, or NCAA. And so both have jurisdiction, but both also have different but similar sets of rules. So the Big Ten Conference announced a violation of its sports, sportsmanship policy, which we didn't look at. So let's look at that right now. Now, a couple of things to note as we look at this document. First, Agreement 10 Sportsmanship Policy was revised as of January of last year. So some of this is fairly new. The other aspect of this is that this is a policy. It's a separate agreement entered into as part of the Big Ten Conference membership. Doesn't mean it's less effective, but it does mean that it's part of a whole that we'll take a look at as part of this video as well. And I did see a couple questions pop in, so let me make sure that I grab them if I can. Well, I know this has been said before, but it's absolutely mind-boggling that they haven't converted to an intercom system yet. Here's the, here's the really sneaky truth about all this, right? So high schools use intercoms, headsets, on the field rather than signs. The NFL uses headsets. College coaches like this system because it does allow them to have a, a, an advantage of some kind in terms of having somebody on their staff decode these signals and have some knowledge of what is likely to happen on the field in front of them. So they haven't moved towards this because they don't want to. I do think the Big Ten might decide to move towards an intercom system. And I wouldn't have been surprised if the Big Ten had, instead of what they elected to do, decided to fine Michigan the cost of implementing an inter intercom system across the conference. I really don't see how any Michigan Wolverine could have disputed that particular penalty, but that's not what they did. So let's take a look at the sportsmanship policy and we will dive in to the legalese, which is why we're all here, right? We're here to talk about due process and the law of football. Very exciting. Okay, so the sportsmanship policy is very broad. Generally, when you see the word policy in a legal document, you know it's going to be broad. But that doesn't mean it's without limit. Nobody agrees to a contract that doesn't have some kind of contours, guide rails, whatever else it might be to govern the ability of someone to impose their will through these rules. So let's take a look at the first provision. The Big Ten Conference expects all contests involving a member institution, that would be the University of Michigan, to be conducted without compromise to any fundamental element of sportsmanship. Makes sense. Such fundamental elements include integrity of the competition, civility towards all, and respect, particularly towards opponents and officials. Accordingly, each member institution, through the actions of the individuals or groups of individuals listed in Agreement 10.1.1 below, has an obligation to behave in a way that does not offend the elements of sportsmanship described above. And certainly, with a policy written this broadly, I think that the elements of sportsmanship are implicated here. Regardless of how you feel about the NCAA bylaws or the NCAA rules or some of the Big Ten rules that we'll look at here, I do think that there is an implication. The spirit of the rules 
that has been offended by what is alleged in the Wild Stallions affair. Actions that are offensive to the integrity of the competition, actions that offend civility, and actions of disrespect are subject to review and are punishable in accordance with the terms of this policy. Although this policy will apply most commonly to actions that occur within or around the competitive arena, the scope of its application is intentionally left unrestricted in order to accommodate any behavior which may occur in any setting deemed by the commissioner to offend the underlying objective this policy seeks to achieve. So that's, again, very, very broad. But what do they mean? For example, public comments or public messaging made at any time by individuals listed below, including comments or messages posted even temporarily via social media, are subject to review and punishable in accordance with the terms of this policy. So taunts through Twitter or whatever it might be are the example given for what this is to be applied to. And historically, this is applied to violent acts on the field, violent acts off the field, things that aren't specifically addressed by the rules themselves, because in general, the rules themselves are the things that we should be caring about when we're talking about violations. Here, what we're about to see is that the Big Ten and the Big Ten commissioner are going to kind of bootstrap this giant concept of anything that touches sportsmanship and apply it in a way that is perhaps not anticipated by the people that signed on to this contract, which is a problem for process. So what are the role of the member institutions? What has the University of Michigan agreed to here? An institution is responsible for and therefore may be held accountable for the actions of its employees, coaches, student athletes, band, spirit squads, mascots, general student body, and any other individual or group of individuals over whom or which it maintains some level of authority. In addition, any member of the above groups may be held individually accountable if found to have committed an offensive action as contemplated by this policy. So a couple of things happen here that are important to know. One, the University of Michigan is responsible for basically everybody that it employs, including and down to the level of the mascot. So if you see lewd gestures from the mascot on the field at a football game, this is where the Big Ten has designed its ability to tell the University of Michigan to take control of its mascot. But it also says any member of the above groups may be held individually accountable. What it doesn't say is individually accountable for things that they didn't do, which is something that we're going to be talking about as part of this video. Each institution is obligated to cooperate with the commissioner during the course of an investigation as to whether an offensive action has occurred. An institution's failure to cooperate shall result in a breach of this policy, which is pretty standard across all kind of NCAA or other collegiate agreements. You agree to follow our investigations, and if you don't, that itself is a violation. Each institution is presumed to be committed to sportsmanship as contemplated by this policy and is encouraged to take any action deemed appropriate to further the underlying objective of this policy. Such actions may be proactive in nature. Such actions may be reactive in nature. Although the commissioner has the ultimate authority to impose disciplinary action in accordance with Agreement 10.2 below, nothing in this policy shall be construed to suggest that institutions are limited in their ability to impose any disciplinary action deemed appropriate in advance of any action that may be taken by the commissioner. So this is a long, legal, easy way of saying you should correct these issues yourselves, schools. And even if you're waiting on us to tell you what's wrong, you can do it in advance of us deciding what's wrong. Authority of the commissioner. Exclusive authority to determine whether offensive actions have occurred. So this is what they're going to lean on quite a lot in this particular issue. The commissioner shall have the exclusive authority to determine whether an offensive action, as contemplated above, has been committed by anyone referenced in Agreement 10.1 above. In making this determination... The commissioner may consider any evidence that he or she deems relevant. The commissioner may accept any information provided by any source, but except as outlined in Agreement 10.3.1 below, has no formal obligation to do so. So this is your breadth. The commissioner gets to decide when a violation has happened and can use any information that they want. And that's part of what we're going to see this University of Michigan and head coach of football, Jim Harbaugh, fight about today. 
In the event the commissioner determines that an offensive action has occurred, the commissioner shall have the authority to impose any disciplinary action in response to the offensive action, subject to the provisions of 10.3.3.1 below. In deciding whether to impose disciplinary action, factors to be considered may include, but shall not be limited to, the general nature of or severity of the offensive action, any injury or damage that results directly from the offensive action, the manner in which the offensive action fits within the context of the rules of the game for the sport at issue, any action taken or imposed in accordance with the applicable rules of the game, the response of and or any action taken by the involved member institutions, the response of or any action taken by any other entity that may have jurisdiction over the offensive action, such as law enforcement, and any prior offensive actions as contemplated within this policy. Are you guys bad guys? Are you doing this regularly? Well, then we can hit you harder. The commissioner has the discretion to pursue or choose not to pursue an investigation as to whether an offensive action has occurred. In the event the commissioner decides to pursue such an investigation, the commissioner shall commence an investigation as expeditiously as possible upon notification that such an offensive action may have occurred. Upon commencement of such an investigation, the commissioner shall determine as expeditiously as possible whether an offensive action did occur. Any involved institution or individual at risk of disciplinary action shall be provided an opportunity which may be waived to offer its or his or her position as to whether an offensive action occurred. The time frame within which an, an institution or individual shall provide its or his or her position shall be set by the commissioner and shall be reasonable in light of the circumstances. So part of the story here is we're going to look at a bunch of letters that were sent between the Big Ten and the University of Michigan, and it was over the course of the last week. Michigan was given a couple of days to respond. That was deemed to be reasonable in light of the circumstances by the commissioner. Some of that may be reasonable. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that any of this is bad lawyering on the part of any of these parties. This is generally pretty high level, good lawyering from all of these parties. And like we say, when we look at Supreme Court opinions, part of what we're going to do here is show you that good lawyering will convince you of its position for the most part when you are reading it in both cases. That's what a good argument looks like. And so as we go through this, you'll see good arguments made by both sides. But there are questions of due process that I think are rightly raised and are legitimately raised by the University of Michigan, and in particular, Jim Harbaugh, who is not going to be found to have committed any of these things in the Wild Stallions affair. That's really all Connor Stallions himself. In the event it becomes clear that an institution is likely to be subjected to disciplinary action, the commissioner shall notify that institution or individual at the earliest reasonable opportunity. Under no circumstances shall the commissioner comment publicly regarding either an investigation or disciplinary action without having first provided notice to any involved institution or individual. Standard disciplinary action. Standard disciplinary action shall include admonishment, reprimand, fines that do not exceed $10,000, and suspensions from no more than two contests. Any combination of the preceding actions shall be considered to be a singular standard disciplinary action. Decisions by the commissioner to impose a standard disciplinary action shall be final and are not subject to appeal. Major disciplinary actions exceeding those limits, and this one does. They suspended Jim Harbaugh from coaching on the sidelines for Michigan games for three games, not two. Must receive prior approval by the Joint Group Executive Committee, which we are told they did receive. In any case for which prior approval is sought, the JGEC shall be provided in writing the involved institution or individual's position as described in Agreement 10.3.1 above. The JGEC may only approve, deny, or lessen the proposed penalty. It shall not increase the proposed penalty. Further, the JGEC may not lessen the penalty to a level lower than that for which its approval was required. Review and action by JGEC shall occur as expeditiously as possible, and its decisions shall be final and are not subject to appeal. Now, there's a lot of language here that says they're final and not subject to appeal, and part of what we're going to talk about today is Michigan going to court over these things. I will say that these bits of language are not magic. 
They don't prevent you from going to court or appealing the decisions that are made by another party. But a court will look at them as essentially what you agreed to, right? The University of Michigan, all the other universities, the various people that are involved in signing on to these types of agreements agreed with this fairly ridiculous standard that allows the commissioner to decide when something has happened, decide what evidence he uses to show that that thing has happened, and that that decision is not subject to appeal. So a court, in all instances, is going to be reluctant to impose its own judgment on a private organization that agreed to these kinds of terms. You saw this with Deflategate in the NFL. You saw this where Commissioner Goodell in that case decided against the laws of science that deflation had occurred in the footballs. And essentially the court said, look, you agreed to this silly standard. That's on you. And I suspect that's part of the reason why we're going to be talking about this today is that this is a silly standard, but the University of Michigan did agree to it. Now, part of their argument is that it was never intended to be quite as silly as the commissioner is using it. But that's a fair argument on the part of the Big Ten that it's very broad by deliberate agreement. And so we shouldn't have to abide by your kind of more narrow interpretation of it, university. That said, what you don't see here is any notion that a person that didn't commit the penalty should be otherwise held accountable for that. Now, people will tell you the NCAA rules, the bylaws actually do say that. And in fact, they do to some extent but it's not as clear that that should apply to the Big Ten's rules. Again, we're talking about two different jurisdictions here. And while the NCAA has a rule that says essentially the head coach is responsible for everything that happens in their program, that in and of itself isn't a individual violation of the Big Ten's rules by that head coach. So I do think Jim Harbaugh is going to have a big argument here, probably more than the University of Michigan. But at the end of the day, the Big Ten is going to have at least some legs to stand on by the general scope and breadth of the sportsmanship policy itself. So let's take a look at some other things that inform that understanding because the sportsmanship policy doesn't exist on its own. I'm bringing up now the Big Ten Conference kind of guidebook here, and this is from a couple of years ago. And this is Rule 32, which will also be implicated in the letters we're about to read. Enforcement policies and procedures. See also... That agreement 10 we just read and see also the policies and procedures on drug testing. Now, that doesn't change what's written here. It just says that those are also informing those specific policies and procedures. So what do we see here in Rule 32? We see that there's limitations on what an institutional staff member can make vis-a-vis -vis public comment on an ongoing investigation. That's one of the reasons you see the University of Michigan not talking. You see that the commissioner may receive information from any source, just like under the sportsmanship policy. And when the commissioner has knowledge of a possible violation, the commissioner may take any interim action the commissioner deems necessary to prevent harm to the interests of the conference or its member universities. So a reasonable commissioner at the Big Ten could say, look, Michigan is dragging us all through the mud. And so I deem it necessary to prevent harm to our interests, whether that's TV partners, whether that's other fan bases, whether that's the other universities themselves to do something against the University of Michigan. And broadly, that seems to be within his ambit. But what is it described as including withholding a student athlete from practice or competition, withholding a coach from conducting practice or coaching a sport? So what he did was he said that Jim Harbaugh can't coach on the sidelines, but can coach practices for the next three weeks. So that's withholding a coach from coaching in a sport, prohibiting or limiting recruiting by any involved member. This is a recruiting violation, canceling or postponing any regularly scheduled athletic contest where a member university is the home team and has to notify 
and the university can self-disclose and punish itself, which is what the University of Michigan did earlier this year on a different basis. And then we have a problem based on the investigation. So one of the arguments that Harbaugh and Michigan have is that the Big Ten didn't actually investigate this. They got a call from the NCAA. They got told the NCAA thinks that this is a big problem. And the Big Ten said, oh, okay, then we'll do something. Upon receipt of a report of an alleged violation, the commissioner or representative shall conduct an investigation to determine whether there is reason to believe a violation has occurred. In the event such a determination is made, the commissioner shall request through the faculty representative that the involved member in university provide the commissioner with all information which the involved member university has, which is or may be relevant to the investigation. Should the involved member university find at any time that it is more likely than not that a violation has occurred, it shall so advise the commissioner in writing and provide a statement regarding remedial action it has taken or proposes to take. So the schools are supposed to be self-regulating here at some level. The involved member university shall cooperate fully with the commissioner, shall provide all request information if available, and shall ensure the availability of all persons under the control of the university for interview by the commissioner or a representative. And in fact, Connor Stallions got suspended with pay when this all started and then resigned from the university because he refused to answer questions in as part of any of these investigations. Now we have a bifurcation. NCAA initiated cases, which we will see this is. The Compliance and Reinstatement Subcommittee shall review violations by member universities as determined by the NCAA and may impose penalties in addition to those imposed by the NCAA for any violations. Good so far. Where the NCAA initiates a preliminary or official inquiry with a member university, the conference will cooperate with university and NCAA representatives in the processing of that case through the normal NCAA investigation hearing and appeal processes. While the case will be processed through normal NCAA channels, the Conference Compliant and Reinstatement Subcommittee shall review the case and may impose additional penalties if warranted subsequent to the NCAA action. So what this says in non-legalese is that when the NCAA starts a case, that the Big Ten will take a back seat and can decide to add to a penalty subsequent to the NCAA action. That's one of the big fights here between these parties is that this is an NCAA-initiated case, but the conference is imposing a penalty now before the NCAA investigation is remotely close to completed because they were getting pushback from coaches and ADs across the conference. I am sympathetic to the commissioner's position on this, but that doesn't mean that we just skip all of the due process protections that are put in place for the benefit of all parties to this agreement. In conference-initiated cases, which this is not, the conference may initiate anything that it wants, may do the informal inquiry, may do a preliminary inquiry, an official inquiry, and then impose various penalties based on a violation. Now, it's important to know as we go through this Big Ten set of rules that when we talk about penalties, the Big Ten can impose a, a penalty on the offending university staff member or student as reprimanded publicly or privately and warned against repetition. The offending university staff member, student, or representative of its athletic interest may be placed on probation. The offending staff member or student may be barred from further participation in the sport involved. The staff member or representative of the offending university's athletic interest found in violation may be denied the privilege of contact with any prospective athlete for a specified period of time, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always the offending staff member, right? So if Jim Harbaugh had authorized, orchestrated, or otherwise organized the Wild Stallions affair, then yeah, you can absolutely pin him to the wall and do what you need to do under your penalties, commissioner. But we don't have this kind of notion that is in, present in the Big Ten rules that says... The head, the head coach is responsible for all institutional staff member actions, right? These are separate rules within both the NCAA and Big Ten guidelines. And what we will see the Big Ten try to do here 
you say, since this is a Big Ten, since this is an NCAA bylaw that an institution's head coach shall be responsible for everything that happens in their program, then the violation is Jim Harbaugh's. And that doesn't really follow from the legalese here. And that is what is going to be a large fight. So let's go back to the Big Ten documents here and see that the penalties are specifically for who's offending, who's violating the rule, which makes sense. Generally speaking, when we talk about penalties, we want it to be applied to that who violates the rule. The Big Ten rule that we just looked at is actually pretty new. It's, it's revision is, I believe, let me see if I can grab it again. Effective January 1st, 2023. So this concept of we're not going to require you to actually have known about this. We're going to just deem you to be responsible for everything that happens in your program is a brand new rule and might well be one that violates due process in and of itself. So we might be looking at a case between Harbaugh and the NCAA eventually that will go and, and look at whether or not this is the kind of rule that can be enforced against someone who didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Now you can say in the chat, you can say otherwise that Jim Harbaugh absolutely knew this was happening, but I think there are reasons to believe that he wouldn't have to know that. And part of that is the series of articles that came out that said Ohio State, Rutgers, Purdue were sharing information to decode the signs of Michigan and they have sh they show that the signs are decoded. And that's not to say that that isn't a different case. It is to say that if you can decode those things through talking to other head coaches or other staff members at other schools and through television broadcasts, as Connor Stallion said he did during COVID, then there's no real reason to believe at the highest level of your program that someone that can tell you what the signs mean or can decode them is doing, them th doing that through illicit means. So it's just not this obvious thing that if Connor Stallions is talking to us about what the signs mean, that he did so in an illegal capacity. And that's where the NCAA and the Big Ten are really struggling here. And we will see that in the letters that we're about to look at. So first, let's look at the Big Ten Conference's letter of November 4th to Ward Manuel, the athletic director of the University of Michigan. Actually, first, let's take a look and see if there are any questions here, because I do see some conversations. I don't have anything to talk about. I mean, I think I do. John Adams question. So earlier you talked about the social media thing. Can Michigan argue that the Big Ten themselves violated the law? So these aren't laws. Let's start there. You'll see the reference to the term illegal in a number of places, but these aren't illegalities. These are violations, if anything, of contract. So we're talking about breach of contract and not violations of law, which may sound like angels on the head of a pin, but it is an important distinction because we aren't talking about the criminal justice system. We aren't talking about innocent until proven guilty. We're talking about standards that are agreed to by the parties themselves. So let's take a look at this first email. NCAA has priority. NCAA started it, which we will see as part of these letters. Dear Ward, dear comma Ward, which is interesting. This email constitutes formal notice of the conference's belief that a violation of the Big Ten sportsmanship policy has occurred. Specifically, both the Big Ten Conference and the University of Michigan were informed by NCAA staff on November 2nd that evidence characterized by the NCAA as uncontroverted exists to demonstrate that a non-coaching football staff member, Connor Stallions, coordinated the scheme by which individuals were directed to attend games of future opponents for scouting purposes in violation of NCAA bylaw 11.6.1, which prohibits in-person scouting of future opponents. In addition, the individuals engaged in scouting were instructed to make video recordings of signals used by opposing teams, which violates NCAA football playing rules, 
Rule 1411H, prohibition on recording signals given by an opposing player, coach, or other team personnel, and the conference's football game management manual, Section 14A, prohibition on taking videos for scouting purposes of games in which the team is not participating. Now, we can break this down a little bit. You saw me discuss the NCAA bylaws and playing football rules here and argue that it's not as clear as is suggested here or by the NCAA staff that this is, in fact, a violation of those rules where Connor Stallion sends someone else. It's difficult for me to understand exactly how that is in person compared to other forms of scouting. And so if you prohibit in-person scouting and Connor Stallion himself doesn't go, I don't see that as being a, a very clear legal violation by the letter of the law. And then recording signals given by an opposing player clearly isn't a violation because you're not opposing anything. If you're just a, a hiree that got a ticket and has been instructed to record a sideline, you're not a member of the Michigan institution. You're not even an agent of the university of Michigan. You might be an agent of Connor Stallions if he's controlling what you do, but that's not even obvious as it stands either. Now, this reference here to the conference's football game management manual is interesting because if we go and we look at that, we see that there is a rule that says motion pictures slash videotapes shall not be taken for scouting purposes. This is understood to apply to any football game other than the one in which the scouts team is participating. Motion pictures and videotapes may be taken on behalf of either or both teams when they are competing. Now, interestingly, you might know that that in and of itself would appear to be in direct contradiction to the rule of NCAA bylaw 11.6.1, which prohibits in-person scouting of future opponents, or, or I'm sorry, FR 1411H, which prohibits recording signals given by an opposing player, coach, or other team personnel. So even though this says you can take it for scouting purposes, you can only scout what appears to be what's on the field and not the signals of the other team itself. Now, this is a good direct statement of potential problems for the Connor Stallions approach, but it is worth noting that there are these kind of areas of contradiction that are not at all obvious when we look at these things together. The Big Ten then continues saying these were not isolated or haphazard incidents. The violations were pervasive, systemic, and occurred over multiple years. Specifically dating back to at least the 2021 season and continuing through the current season, the staff member purchased strategically located tickets for games involving future opponents. These tickets were in numerous venues and transferred to individuals who were instructed to attend the games and make video recordings of signals used by opposing teams. Information, including videos of opponent signals, was then delivered back to the staff member who had purchased the tickets. During the time in question, including through the seventh game of this season, the staff member was present on the sidelines of games in close proximity to the institution's coaching staff and communicated directly with the coaching staff. Now, this sentence is weird because there's no problem with anybody communicating directly with the coaching staff. I think there's an implication there that the coaching staff knew that there was an issue. But again, stealing signs in college football isn't itself illegal. And that's an important spot to, to remember when we talk about this issue, because there's going to be some weird things that are said in these emails and by the Big Ten that suggest that maybe it should be if the Big Ten's position were to be taken to its full extent. But that's not illegal in and of itself. So talking to coaches about signs isn't illegal either. It's how those signs were gathered. The other important thing that I wanted to flag here as we continue on is that what Ward Manuel at, you know, at the University of Michigan gets from the Big Ten is that evidence characterized by the NCAA as uncontroverted exists to demonstrate all of this. Right. So we have a couple of things that are basically admitted in that language. One is that the Big Ten hasn't investigated it itself. And two, <clears throat> that essentially the Big Ten is expecting Michigan to just accept what an NCAA staffer says is evidence of this thing. 
Now, that might sound like enough for some of you, but if you think about this in terms of a criminal case, this is essentially the prosecutor saying, we can show that all of this happened and you should just submit to us. You should even fight us in court because we can show all this happened. So everything else is a waste of time. And if you just fight us, then you are being belligerent and we should punish you more. And that's what we're going to see happen here with respect to due process is that the Big Ten isn't going to conduct its own investigation, is going to characterize these things as delivered by the NCAA as uncontroverted and ask Michigan why it's not being more responsive to its claims. <clears throat> In addition to information shared with the conference and institution by the NCAA, during the aforementioned call on November 2nd, 2023, other evidence possessed or viewed by the conference includes the following. Number one, a spreadsheet shown to the conference by the NCAA for which one worksheet includes the 2023 schedules of scheduled opponents and potential opponents. That's not illegal in and of itself. The spreadsheet includes extensive information related to scouting assignments for games, including names of individuals who would be attending the games, the presence of dollar amounts associated with some games, and notes indicating the need to find individuals in certain locales to attend games. Another worksheet within the same spreadsheet file included written descriptions of opponent signals. This worksheet is either in possession of or has been shared with the institution's outside counsel for this matter. Now, it's implied here that the spreadsheet was written by Connor Stallions or Connor Stallions aficionado, but it's not at all clear to me that it's not a spreadsheet written by the NCAA as described in this paragraph. And I don't say that by means of defending the University of Michigan. It's probably a Stallions spreadsheet, but as described by the Big Ten itself, if I'm the president of the University of Michigan, for instance, I look at that and say, I'm sorry, what? You're going to have to be more specific about what we're talking about. Two, <clears throat> data showing ticket purchases by the staff member, Mr. Stallions, for games involving future opponents, including at least four games in 2021, 13 games in 2022, and five games during the first seven weeks of the 2023 season. The number of games scouted is likely higher as some institutions have provided ticket information directly to the NCAA. In the game specifically referenced, tickets purchased were located at or near midfield facing either the home or visiting team sideline. In one game involving two Big Ten teams, one ticket faced the home sideline and the other ticket faced the visiting sideline. In most cases, the tickets were transferred to other individuals. However, there are games for which the tickets did not appear to have been transferred that correspond to dates on which Michigan did not have a game. Now, to me, this is actually kind of hiding some of the big stuff that they have in this email, which is to suggest that Mr. Mr. Stallions actually went to the games himself. Now, all of the arguments that I have discussed in both the earlier video and this one assume that Connor Stallions isn't silly enough to actually go in person. But to the extent that he did, that's pretty much a clear violation. There's no case to be made that that isn't in-person scouting of an opponent. And if you record at the same time, well, then you're pretty much dead to rights on those. So I'd like to hear more about that. But with respect to the transfers, that scheme is probably within a loophole of the rules as they stand right now. The conference has also been informed by a member institution that surveillance video exists of an individual in the seat location purchased by the staff member recording the opposing sideline. In addition to the ticket data, the conference was informed by the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference that the staff member had purchased tickets to the SEC football championship game. Now, interestingly enough there, viewing championship games appears to be an exception to the rule on scouting put forth in the NCAA rules. So it's not at all clear that that's a violation of the rules. And I say that Again, not to forgive the rest of this. This all sounds very bad, and Connor Stallions appears to have gone above and beyond when it comes to rule-breaking for the University of Michigan. It's not something that I like, and it's not something I will defend. But when you're evaluating this from a legal perspective or evaluating it from a defensive perspective, if you are, again, 
say, the president of the University of Michigan, you look at these kind of reaches and say, well, it's not illegal to talk with coaches on the sideline and it's not illegal to have tickets to the SEC championship game. So you're adding things in the middle of your claims that aren't otherwise rule violations to conflate and make things look worse. And that's not something that we would generally abide by if we're going to actually have a conversation about what we should do about these things. Number three, photos and videos from the public domain show this staff member adjacent to and communicating with coaches during games occurring within the time frame at issue. One photo was taken from Mr. Stallion's since de deleted Instagram account showing him during the October 2nd, 2021 game at Wisconsin, standing shoulder to shoulder with the defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, with Mr. McDonald focused on the field and Mr. Stallion's looking intently in the direction of the opposing sideline. Mr. Stallion's caption for the photo read, just two football guys debating what the best halftime snack on the platter is. I don't know why that information is included, but thank you. There's also video of Mr. Stallions watching the opposing sideline during the November 26, 2022 game at Ohio State, and then gesturing to the Michigan defense in reaction to the signals being provided to the opposing offense. There's also video of Mr. Stallions during the December 31st, 2022 game against TCU, standing shoulder to shoulder with defensive coordinator Jesse Minter and talking to him while intently watching what was happening on the field and or the TCU sideline. A staff member intensely looks at the field while helping to coach a University of Michigan football game is not obviously illegal in and of itself. And again, since you're allowed to steal signs, the fact that Stallions has the signs and is coordinating with these other coordinators and says, hey, I think this is going to be a run or a pass, or I think this defense is going to be a blitz or whatever it is he's saying in these contexts is not obviously illegal in and of itself. So you've got a Big Ten now that hasn't investigated for itself that is saying, hey, the NCAA says all these things are true and then is using things from Twitter, essentially, the public domain, as put forth by Ohio State and Michigan State fans or whoever, and says, yes, he's talking, he's looking at the signals, and he's talking to the coaches and saying that that's somehow implying that there's bad acts happening there. As set forth above, says the Big Ten, it is not permissible to engage in in-person scouting of future opponents or to record opponent signals. When a team breaks rules for the purpose of gaining a competitive advantage, the team inherently has an advantage over an opponent. Violating rules for the purpose of gaining a competitive advantage inherently compromises the integrity of the competition. There's also strong concern that player safety was compromised by the pervasiveness of the scheme. Now, this is where things get a little bit ridiculous because Michigan State against Michigan said, we, we might not play them because we're worried about the health and safety of our players because they have our signs and those kinds of things. Now, they wound up huddling the whole game. They did play Michigan. They lost 49 to nothing, I will mention, but hey. The fact that this is said implies that there's a potential risk to the health and safety of these student athletes when the other team has the signs of whoever they're playing. So when Michigan brings up, hey, they all have our signs for the championship game and Ohio State and Rutgers sent them to Purdue, which both teams deny, by the way, but this is the kind of thing where we're all talking about whispers and rumors and innuendo about each other, that that would itself be a problem for health and safety, but that's not what the Big Ten actually wants to say. They want to say, due to the pervasiveness of the scheme, Connor Stallings was just so darn good at this and there were so many tickets that that's when health and safety was implicated. But I just don't see that as holding, and I don't think it's a wise thing for the Big Ten to say because you do have a situation with the NCAA and college sports as it stands right now that where, where college athletes are thinking about becoming employees, thinking about unionizing, having all these conversations with the NCAA and suggesting that the NCAA and the Big Ten allow sign stealing in general and that's a risk for the health and safety of the players is probably not what I would want to go out there with as a commissioner of one of these particular conferences. Compromising the integrity of the competition violates one of the most fundamental elements of sportsmanship because the result is an unfair game on unequal terms. 
And the conference's sportsmanship policy explicitly sets the expectation that all contests are to be conducted without compromise to the integrity of the competition. And the policy exists for the purpose of imposing accountability when that expectation is not met. In this case, the NCAA has confirmed to the conference and the institution the existence of uncontroverted evidence of the in-person scouting scheme done for the purpose of stealing signals of future opponents. The NCAA has confirmed to the conference. Now, this is where the, the commissioner says, I'm allowed to trust the information I get from anywhere, but the University of Michigan doesn't have to. The University of Michigan doesn't have to say, well, the NCAA and what it's accusing of, uh, us of is exactly correct. And as we've talked about in this space, the NCAA thinks this is wrong. It might well be wrong. I tend to think it's wrong as well, but I'm not sure it's a violation of the rules as written. That can be a problem, right? Organizations can write rules that don't cover every possible thing that could be wrong all the time. And so the NCAA saying this is a problem is covering their own butts because they maybe didn't write the rules as well as they thought they did. In accordance with the conference's sportsmanship policy, the commissioner has the exclusive authority to determine whether an offensive action has been committed. And in making that determination, the commissioner may consider any evidence deemed relevant provided by any source. Moreover, the sportsmanship policy requires that upon determination that offensive action did occur, the commissioner shall as expeditiously as possible determine whether disciplinary action shall be imposed. And if so, what it should be. Again, though, the problem is rule 32, which says if it's an NCAA investigation, we will take action subsequent to the NCAA. In light of the above, the institution is at risk of disciplinary action in accordance with the sportsmanship policy and therefore has the opportunity, which may be waived, to offer its position as whether the offensive action occurred. Head coaches are inherently in charge of their sport programs. This notion is codified within the NCAA rules, specifically in NCAA bylaw 11.1.1.1, which states that head coaches are responsible for the actions of all institutional staff members who report directly or indirectly to the head coach. In accordance with the Big Ten Conference Handbook, institutions are required to adhere to all NCAA bylaws. So head coaches are responsible for their programs. As leader of the sport program, the head coach of the institution's football team is at risk of disciplinary action in accordance with the sportsmanship policy and likewise has the opportunity, which may be waived, to offer his position as to whether the offensive action occurred. So from a legal perspective, do you see what happened here? They say that NCAA bylaw 11.1.1.1 says the head coach is responsible for the, everything that happens in his program. And so we can take action against the head coach, even though our sportsmanship policy and rule 32 only say that we can penalize the people that actually did the thing that we are trying to stop from having been done. So we can penalize Connor Stallions, but that's not available to them anymore because he was suspended and then resigned. So they got to go and find another pound of flesh. And Jim Harbaugh is a big name and a lot of people don't like him because he's an interesting character that went out with a press conference yesterday that said Michigan should be America's team because of all the adversity they fought. And that didn't go over terribly well with Michigan's rivals and opponents. And I don't blame them one bit, but folks don't like Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh is a big name. And so they say, we're going to do something about Jim Harbaugh. Note further that this process is being initiated in relation to evidence available at the moment, which indicates that an in-person scouting scheme done for the purpose of obtaining signals of future opponents existed. It is acknowledged, however, that an NCAA investigation regarding this matter remains ongoing and may produce other evidence that warrants further action in the future. And that paragraph is necessary for them to say because, hey, it might come out somebody murders someone as part of this scheme and then we'd want to penalize you more. But it also goes to the point of this investigation hasn't barely started, let alone been completed, and this is not the usual time for the Big Ten to act. And if it wants to act, it shouldn't need this paragraph. Further, it is recognized that the institution has already taken action in relation to this matter by suspending Mr. Stallions, who, according to public records, has now resigned from the institution. It is also recognized that the institution has been and remains cooperative with the ongoing proceedings. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Get back to us. And that's what the Big Ten left it at. Then, Michigan, see if I can get, get to it here, Michigan responded. 
So that letter was November 4th. This is Michigan's response on November 8th. This response to your November 4th, 2023 email regarding the Big Ten Conference's investigation of the University of Michigan football program. Yeah, it is no worth noting that that was done by email correspondence. That's not the usual thing that you send in an email. It might sound a little old school, but in general, we put those in letters and on letterhead rather than email. When they're that important, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars and huge implications for a university's program. At the outset, let me assure you that the entire Michigan community, including the university president, board of regents, vice president, and general counsel, football coaching staff, and I are treating the allegations about our football program with the utmost seriousness. We are fully cooperating with the NCAA investigation, which enforcement staff indicated is due to be completed this fall, and we are committed to accepting responsibility for what the evidence ultimately shows. Michigan remains dedicated to following all rules of the NCAA and the Big Ten Conference and stands firmly behind the conference's sportsmanship policy. Agreement 10.1.3 requires the commissioner to presume Michigan's commitment to sportsmanship in applying the policy, and on behalf of the entire university, I unreservedly reiterate that commitment to you today. As explained below, however, any disciplinary action in this matter at this time is procedurally improper, premature, and unwarranted. But I also must emphasize that the NCAA investigation is ongoing, and we have not yet had an opportunity to review almost any of the evidence or to meaningfully respond. And NCAA rules limit Michigan's ability to conduct its own investigation. See various parts of the bylaws. Our ability to state our position at this time is therefore inherently limited, and Michigan reserves the right to make additional statements of position as the investigation develops. First, we say that action at this stage is improper. Disciplinary action premised on unadjudicated rule violations is a breach of the Big Ten Conference handbook, and any disciplinary action against Coach Jim Harbaugh on this record would exceed the commissioner's authority under the sportsmanship policy and be factually unwarranted on the current record. The conference handbook provides critical procedural protections for adjudicating alleged violations of NCAA and conference rules. Where a sportsmanship policy violation is expressly founded on alleged rule breaking of conference or NCAA regulations, the commissioner cannot make an end run around these protections by redefining the as yet unproven rules violations as violations of sportsmanship. Allowing such a procedure, in essence, granting the commissioner unilateral authority to punish all rules violations without due process, and honestly, this sentence should say all alleged rules violations without due process, would breach the handbook and gut the procedural protections that all institutions in the conference and their many constituents rely on. And as precedent reveals, this is simply not what the sportsmanship policy is for. So we're going to go into a historical discussion of the sportsmanship policy in just a second. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about procedural protections and due process for a second. Because Jim Harbaugh, again, in his press conference yesterday said, I learned in civics class that it was innocent until proven guilty and said all these various things that aren't fully strictly applicable to this particular case, but are important concepts for why we care so much about process, right? That we are a society of rules and laws and not of people and tyrants doing whatever it is that they choose to do. And my favorite quote on this actually comes from a play, uh, Man for All Seasons. It's where I put the pun in the title to this episode. William Roper in A Man for All Seasons, while arguing with Sir Thomas More about whether or not they should go after this bad guy, says, so now you would give the devil the benefit of the law? Sir Thomas More says, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? And I think that that question, when we talk about it on the internet a lot, is very often what motivates people, right? These laws, these things are technicalities. There's loopholes. There's people getting away with things. We want to go and get the bad person. We want to go and get the bad program and stop them. They cheated. They're cheaters. They need to be stopped. And here, William Rupert says, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And Sir Thomas More has the best retort possible. Oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law is all being flat. This country, England in this particular case, 
is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil the benefit of the law for my own safety's sake. That it's important, especially when you're emotionally or otherwise passionately invested in going and getting someone, whether it's a criminal defendant or it's a university program that you really hate, either because they're your rivals or because you think they're caught dead to rights cheating, to go and say, we're going to do this by the book. And if anything, I would argue that for our rivals, the Ohio states and Michigan states of the world, this is the worst possible thing that could have happened here because I do think that Michigan has justifiably asserted a sort of victim status on this. And even though you've got articles like The Athletic here that says, spare us the drama, Michigan, your challenges and adversity are self-inflicted, Michigan and Connor Stallions may have done this thing and it's bad. And I can certainly see that if it is proven that Michigan should be punished for it, I'm not going to just tell you that they shouldn't, that when we look at this, what we're talking about that isn't self-inflicted are the process problems. Most of us have seen the brief clip of Sharon Moore breaking down on the field during his postgame interview following Michigan's win at Penn State on Saturday afternoon. It was intense. That's right. Michigan did beat top 10 ranked Penn State at their home. But in case you haven't, the Michigan offensive coordinator turned acting head coach started bawling on television. He began by thanking God, then proceeded to profess his love to Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh with the help of a few F-bombs. I effing love you, man, Moore said to Harbaugh through the television cameras. I love this stuff out of you, man. We did this for you. And this was then made fun of. And the Athletic did an article about how Michigan's being essentially dramatic and overly melodramatic about all of this stuff. And Harbaugh isn't dead and whatnot. It's understandable why Moore would be so emotional. He was thrust in this role for the second time this year. And this time it was done at the 11th hour. Yes, it's worth noting that that tweet that I've talked about with the Big Ten suspending Jim Harbaugh comes with Harbaugh and the team on the plane to Pennsylvania. And on a court holiday Friday night, which is one of the reasons why the suspension took hold on this this last weekend. The Wolverines were playing on the road against a one-loss Penn State team, still trying to claw its way into the Big Ten championship game. Despite all of that, Michigan unequivocally proved it was the better team and handed Penn State a demoralizing 24-15 to loss. Nobody is telling Moore not to be emotional. It was his team and his players who won a hard-fought game on the road. They should be ecstatic. But the rest of us, let's not let the tears and the emotion emanating from Moore and the rest of this Michigan team blind us from one inarguable truth. This is Michigan's fault. Moore acted as though Harbaugh were in the hospital or dealing with some sort of tragedy outside of his control. No, Harbaugh was down the street from Beaver Stadium, sitting at the hotel and watching the Michigan game on television. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Michigan is a sympathetic party in all of this, but there is a world in which Jim Harbaugh doesn't know this is happening. There's not a lot of reason to know that his staffer is essentially a crazy person that has a 600-page manifesto on how to make Michigan football a winning program and has hired people across the country to go watch games for him, especially if you can decode signals with other talking to, co to coaches or television broadcasts. And then Jim Harbaugh is told on the flight to the biggest game of the year so far for his team that he's not going to be allowed to coach for something that he doesn't think he did and not think that that isn't something that we should be concerned about from a process standpoint. Michigan may say it's winning for Har Harbaugh while wearing shirts that read Michigan versus everybody, but this situation isn't the Wolverines fighting through adversity or winning in spite of some terrible random circumstance. Michigan is paying a consequence for breaking the rules, and there's an ongoing investigation into the sign-stealing scandal to see how deep it goes. Some may tell you it was a marginal competitive advantage, but others will tell you the Wolverines were flat-out cheating to win games this year and in the past. Michigan isn't a heartwarming story as it fights a legal battle to get its coach back on the sidelines in time for the Ohio State game in two weeks. This is the Big Ten holding the program accountable for transgressions, levying a penalty on the head coach as the figurehead of the entire program. Oh no, the university's president 
posted to his public X account Sunday morning. Countless members of the University of Michigan family have reached out to me over the weekend, and I wanted to express my appreciation. Like any community, we face our share of challenges and adversity. There have been many such moments in our history, but as our team showed so clearly yesterday, we will respond to any challenge head on with a conviction to do better and emerge even stronger. Go blue. Challenges and adversity? I guess so. If challenges and adversity can be self-inflicted, that's the type of social media post you'd expect from a university president after a tragedy. Yet there is some debate as to whether the Big Ten should have suspended Harbaugh on Friday. There is, in fact, debate. You see here from CBS, in punishing Michigan football, Big Ten's Tony Petiti maintains league credibility and gains trust of members, which I think is almost exactly wrong. But then you also have articles like uh, Sports Illustrated, Big Ten botched Michigan Jim Harbaugh punishment with clumsy investigation that says this is not going to go well for you and that Michigan is going to fight it in court, which they've already started to do. So as I take a breather here for just a minute, let's get some questions if anybody has any uh, in the comments and I'll see if I can grab any super chats or anything else. Brentwood Sheik, thank you so much for gifting 10 Hoglaw memberships. I really appreciate that. New members, we've got emojis. We've got fun stuff for you to do with that membership. Thank you so much for being members of the channel. Thank you, Brentwood Sheik, for putting those out there. I really do appreciate the support. Joe Beer, a member for nine months. Just wanted to say I'm looking well. I don't know about that, but I'm getting there. Great to see your recovery progressing so much. I really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you. And Snoopy Kins, a member for 15 months. My cats still respond to Hoag's voice with, hey, where's the food from back in the days of daily hangouts and headlines? I'm glad to hear it. Sorry about that, cats. If there's not food ready, it's that's my fault. I'll try to make sure that the schedule is more uh, regular for you. I really appreciate that from the members. Thank you so much. Um, CivBase says it was a weird action by the Big Ten, in my opinion. If Harbaugh is guilty, the punishment is nowhere near enough. If he's innocent, the punishment is pointless. It's a transparent PR stunt. That's an interesting take, right? Yeah, if Harbaugh is a mastermind on this, certainly being able to coach practice and just not being on the sidelines for three weeks at the end of the season isn't enough for what is essentially a stolen season by the University of Michigan. Uh, if he didn't know anything about this, then essentially the Big Ten is bootstrapping the rules that don't really apply in the way that they're suggesting that they do, and they're going after a person that doesn't deserve it for what hasn't been proven yet. So it is an interesting way to take it. Kelly C says, one could argue that the people attacking Harbaugh have taken it too far. Yeah, absolutely, I would say. Um, and Coparistics says, I hope the other schools realize the kind of power that will be granting the Big Ten to punish them in the future when the shoe is inevitably on the other foot. In my experience, people have trouble with that, but that's the best thing that you can talk to people about when you're talking about process, right? And I see this a lot in politics. And I, I often say, <clears throat> you know, you don't want somebody to violate the Constitution. You don't want somebody to do by executive order what really should be done by law. And a lot of the time you have whatever party is in office that likes the executive order saying, but this is what's necessary and Congress is broken or those kinds of things. And I would always offer, imagine that the person you hate the most in politics instead has this power. How would you feel about that executive order then? How would you feel if you're Ohio State or Michigan State and the Big Ten just said, well, we think that this is a sportsmanship violation for whatever reason. And now we're going to do something under our own unilateral authority while the NCAA is investigating before any proof has been made because the NCAA told us, told us they have the proof they need. I don't think they would like it very much. Traveling Scienceman asks, would pictures taken by a fan who shares it with the team they favor be fine? I don't see why it wouldn't. I, again, this is kind of an, a gray area because even the application to the Wild Stallions affair I don't think is a straight line from what the bylaws actually say. Um, but certainly if you didn't commission the photos to be taken, 
I don't know why you would be in violation of the rule unless you kind of started a website or a Google drive and said, this is where you should put those photos. And you did something a little bit more organizational in nature that would go against the spirit of the rule. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Why all the hate for coaches worked his ass off to get him and his team to where they are today. Hey, I love my Michigan Wolverines. I like Jim Harbaugh as weird as he is, but I understand people being mad about all this. I I'm just not certain that it rises above a very motivated, somewhat crazy Michigan fan working on the staff. And yes, I do think there needs to be better vetting by the University of Michigan of who they hire and how these people operate within the program. So if you want to make an institutional control type argument, I would be open to hearing it. But I think at this point in time, we're still well away from knowing exactly what happened in all of this anyway. Jayford Jen, thank you so much for the super chat. As a non-Harbaugh fan, I appreciate you explaining why the process is so important. I'm also inspired to read A Man for All Seasons. Love you, Hogue. I love A Man for All Seasons. And to, as a fair warning, it's a kind of religious piece. It's about certain aspects of religion in England. Um, but the actual conversation about when due process counts, what it, what it protects, why it matters, is, I think, so important, especially today. And if you follow me on Twitter slash X, you'll see me just kind of randomly post that quote from time to time, especially when I'm reading a story or otherwise involved in something that I think is really a problem for due process. Contender says, apparently Hogeek was cleaning Sunday mornings with BitCast or mopping and vacuuming every week. Today, I decided to deep clean my living room. Hogue is a good influence. I'm glad I'm encouraging you. I, I hope your living space is as clean as you want it to be. Kelly C. asks, did you see the images of signs Ohio State had taken, had taken on the scoreboard at the big house? I saw the documents that aren't a part of this video that show that certain of Michigan signs had been decoded and there were pictures of the big house scoreboard, the, the Michigan stadium scoreboard that suggested they were taken by someone that was deliberately scouting within the confines of Michigan stadium. But to be honest with you, before all this happened, I would have assumed that people were going to various games within the conference to learn certain aspects of what's happening for the signs or not for the signs. I think the interesting thing about all this is that the Big Ten is acting now because a lot of coaches and athletic directors complained, and part of that is because Michigan has basically won the conference for three straight years. So what you've got is a confluence of conflicts of interest where the commissioner, who's brand new this year, it should be pointed out, and doesn't have a history of working within college sports, is hearing from athletic directors and coaches who fear for their jobs because they keep losing to Michigan and now see Michigan as a team to go and take out. So whenever you have situations like that in things that are more important than football, that's, that's worth taking note of, right? It's worth looking at and saying, well, we need to take account of the fact that there are self-interest. There are people that are going to be interested in what this outcome is. And that's part of what will be argued here. <clears throat> and then this is the SI article and let's go more to Michigan's response. Got way too many things to look at here. <clears throat> the conference handbook provides critical procedural protections for adjudicating alleged violations of NCAA and conference rules. Whereas sportsmanship policy violation is expressly founded on alleged rule break breaking of conference or NCAA regulations, the commissioner cannot make an end round around these protections by redefining the as yet unproven rules violations. So we talked about this paragraph, but this is basically a notion that the rules exist for a reason and you can't just say, well, that's close to breaking that rule or I don't like how this feels if it's otherwise covered by a rule 
and that the sportsmanship policy was not designed to be things that were already covered by the rules. Now, I think this is a bit of a reach from the University of Michigan based on the breadth of the language used in the sportsmanship policy, but it's a reach that I probably would have made myself if I were defending Michigan on this. Handbook Rule 32 provides extensive procedural protections for institutions and their constituents when they are alleged to have violated NCAA or conference rules. First, the commissioner or representative must perform an initial investigation and determine whether there is reason to believe a violation has occurred. If that determination is made, the commissioner must route a request through the faculty representative that the involved member university provide the commissioner with all information which the involved member has, which is or may be relevant to the investigation. The investigation continues from there with appropriate opportunities for the institution to self-disclose. Again, I think that's probably a little bit of a reach if we look at what the actual policies are. The commissioner does have this exclusive authority to determine whether an offensive action has been occurred, has occurred, and it has the exclusive authority to determine whether it's going to make an investigation. The commissioner has the discretion to pursue or choose not to pursue an investigation as to whether an offensive action has occurred. Now, this follows from what we've been reading in the NCAA and Big Ten rules. It's not entirely clear what this or choose not to pursue means. I would argue from a fairness perspective that it means that the commissioner can look at a situation and say, I'm not going to investigate it because it's not an issue. <clears throat> but technically, you can read this sentence to mean the commissioner is going to look at an offensive action, has determined that it exists, and doesn't have to investigate it if they don't want to, which I don't think is the best reading. But the commissioner is going to make this argument. And I, I think that it is existent within the language because it is so kind of unwieldy. Importantly, a guiding principle throughout the enforcement process shall be that a case, whether major or secondary, shall be administered by, primarily by either the Big Ten or NCAA because it is the policy of the conference enforcements program to avoid duplication and increase consistency. In complex cases like this one, the NCAA is often the preferred organization to determine the facts and penalty because of its superior resources and experience. For that reason, when a case has been initiated by the NCAA, the handbook contemplates that the conference will cooperate with university and NCAA representatives in the processing of that case through the normal NCAA investigation hearing and appeal process. While the case will be processed through normal NCAA channels, the conference compliance and reinstatement committee shall review the case and may impose additional penalties if warranted subsequent to the NCAA action. I would have highlighted that. Thus, the usual process when there is a pending NCAA investigation is for the conference to cooperate with the NCAA, let it go through the NCAA, and then decide if it's going to add to that. That procedure makes sense since parallel investigations may interfere with each other and parallel disciplinary processes may reach opposite conclusions, undermining the legitimacy of both. Any decision to impose punishment before the NCAA investigation or remedial action is concluded would flout these aspects of conference policy and the values and protections they enshrine. I think that's broadly right. But even assuming that the conference can and should initiate its own parallel investigation of this matter, the handbook provides respondents with significant procedural protections before they can be held accountable for rules violations. Rule 32 provides escalating procedure protections depending on the nature of the investigation infraction. Informal inquiries require a letter of inquiry regarding the possibility of secondary infractions of conference or NCAA rules. Preliminary inquiries require written or in-person inquiries regarding the possibility of major infractions of NCAA or conference rules with appropriate notice to university officials. Official inquiries require a written document outlining major allegations, and prior to either a preliminary or official inquiry for a major violation, the Compliance and Reinstatement Committee, not merely the commissioner, must determine if a reasonable basis exists to believe that a major violation may have occurred, again, with proper notice. So the basics of Michigan's response here are that it's too early and you're violating the rules that are set forth in Rule 32. 
The commissioner's response to this will be that Rule 32 doesn't apply that way to the sportsmanship policy. And I think you've got essentially <clears throat> a reasoned fight on both sides as to whether Rule 32 impacts how the sportsmanship policy can be affected. Apologies. The handbook then presides in, provides an extensive appeal process involving a notice of appeal, responses from affected institutions, documentary submissions, and a hearing at which parties have the right to make oral representations to the Joint Group Appeals Committee. It does, in fact, in the Big Ten handbook, <coughs> it doesn't with respect to the sportsmanship policy. Your email expressly premises a sportsmanship policy investigation on alleged violations of NCAA and conference rules. Specifically, your basis for a potential offensive action is alleged violations of NCAA bylaw 11.6.1, football rule 1411H, and football game management manual section 14A. But Michigan and any involved in individuals are entitled to all of the conference handbook's protections to determine whether such violations were committed in the first place. Until violations have been determined under the NCAA's interpretive and or infractions process or Rule 32's provisions, the allegations of rule breaking are unproven. And I think this is their strongest argument, right? The Big Ten wants to say the NCAA says it can prove all this stuff, but not only are we taking the NCAA's word for it, the NCAA is saying they can prove these facts and then claiming that they're a violation of the rules. They haven't even gone through their interpretive process to determine that the rules were violated. So the Big Ten acting in advance is going outside of due process and jeopardizing the whole process. To state the obvious, none of these procedural protections have been followed in this case. From the initial vote by the Compliance and Reinstatement Committee finding a reasonable basis for a major violation to the extensive appeals process guaranteed to institutions and their constituents. All of the rules violations that underlie your email are therefore unproven. Instead of taking the prescribed process for investigating and proving the rules violations on which you could expressly base the asserted offensive action, your email appears to claim that the conference can ignore all of these protections simply by bootstrapping unproven rules violations through the sportsmanship policy. That result breaches the handbook. Nothing in Agreement 10 gives the commissioner the authority to find rules violations which, without resort to Rule 32's procedural protections. Whereas here you have expressly and specifically premised a potential offensive action on violations of the rules, those predicate violations must be adjudicated as provided for by the handbook. That result makes particular sense in light of the sportsmanship policy's purpose and traditional use. Conference precedent confirms that the sportsmanship policy generally addresses behavior that does not fit squarely into a technical rule violation or to cover the multitude of situations for which it would be impossible to create a clear rule. Agreement 10.3.4 requires the conference to perform an annual review of sportsmanship policy investigations. We've reviewed the last three years worth of sportsmanship investigations and the invariably involved offenses, such as disparaging public comments regarding officiating, post-game insults, profane language directed at officials, taunting, aggressive actions towards opponents, referees inappropriately addressing players, using a racial slur, scuffles between players, disrespectful social media posts, and obscene gestures. Unlike violations of clearly defined rules, those are the sorts of infractions for which a highly discretionary adjudicatory system such as the sportsmanship policy makes sense. We are not aware of a single instance in which the sportsmanship policy has ever been deployed as a backdoor way of holding an institution or individual responsible for a rules violation that has not been established in accordance with Rule 32 protections. Precedent refutes that the commissioner can grant to himself the unreviewable power to punish rules violations and bypass the normal process. Claiming that power would breach the handbook and establish an indefensible precedent. And I think that paragraph is fantastic, and I think that's correct. I know that's going to upset some of Michigan's rivals and discussion points that we have regarding whether or not the University of Michigan should be punished. But I do think that there is a point to the process and that that process is valuable for future actions as well as this one in front of us right now.
Then we have the commissioner lacks the authority to punish Coach Harbaugh under the sportsmanship policy. The commissioner also lacks authority under agreement 10 to punish Coach Harbaugh. Imposing disciplinary action will be a clear breach of the handbook. The sportsmanship policy authorizes the commissioner to impose disciplinary action on only two specifically delineated categories of respondents. First, the commissioner may hold individually accountable a person associated with an institution if that person is found to have committed an offensive action. Second, the commissioner may hold accountable an institution that is responsible for the person who committed an offensive action. That's it. Coach Harbaugh fits in neither category. He is not an institution as defined by the handbook, though he probably wants to be. And there is no reasonable view of either the language of Agreement 10 or the known facts that suggest that Car Coach Harbaugh himself committed an offensive action. The commissioner, therefore, lacks any authority under the sportsmanship policy to impose disciplinary action on Coach Harbaugh. Now, this is a big argument. And this happens a lot, both in politics, in governments, and in agreements like this one or at the NFL level, right? This is an actual statement that says you can't just use whatever you want because you think it's right. You have to actually have the authority as granted to you by the membership of whatever association we're talking about, in, in this case, the Big Ten. And you don't have the authority to do this thing. So you can't just play around with words and get to where you want to be. Nothing in your email suggests that there is any basis to conclude that Coach Harbaugh committed an offensive action. Your email instead claims that the commissioner has the power under the sportsmanship policy to punish Coach Harbaugh under the NCAA's head coach responsibility bylaw, but that is incorrect. First, as you conceded in our November 3rd conversation, the conference rules do not include a concept of head coach responsibility. And we are not aware of any precedent in which the sportsmanship policy has been applied to hold the head coach responsible for the acts of any other person. Rather, if the conference wishes to enforce an NCAA bylaw, such as the head coaching responsibility bylaw, it must take the action through the procedural protections of Rule 32. Nothing in Agreement 10 allows independent conference enforcement by bylaw 11.1.1.1 or any other rule. Any other result would be irreconcilable with the language of Agreement 10 in the handbook. The sportsmanship policy expressly identifies only two categories of people who can be held responsible, as we just talked about. Disciplinary action is premature. Even if disciplinary action were permissible at this stage, which it is not, such action would be unjustifiably premature. There is no reason to shortcut a full investigation in favor of summary punishment. The conference handbook entitles Michigan to due process, a reasonable opportunity to respond to the allegations, <clears throat> and an impartial decision maker. There remain significant factual questions as well as disputes about the application of the rules. Those outstanding issues are material to whether an offensive action occurred, the nature and gravity of any offensive action, and the proper scope of any disciplinary punishment. We are aware of no justification that would permit the conference to ignore these outstanding issues and impose an immediate sanction. Your email troublingly asserts that disciplinary action is based on evidence available at the moment and reserves the right to take future action based on other evidence that may arise. But Agreement 10 envisions the imposition of disciplinary action at the end of an investigation, not in piecemeal fashion as the investigation develops. Indeed, we are concerned that the rush to punish Michigan benefits before the facts have been determined and the rules carefully applied by the NCAA or the Conference Rules 32 process suggests that this action is more about reacting to pressure from the public and other conference members rather than a desire to fairly and partially apply the rules. We are aware of no evidence or allegation that violations are continuing, or that there is any ongoing harm that requires immediate corrective measures. Your email provides no explanation for why the conference thinks it must impose disciplinary action without waiting for full investigation and adjudication of rules violations. The commissioner is required to wait until the facts have been fully determined and the rules applied. This continues for a while, but they say Stallions is gone. There are significant disputes about the application of the rules to alleged conduct. Those disputes require careful attention and many will likely be adjudicated in the course of the NCAA action. For example, your email cites NCAA bylaw 11.6.1, but that bylaw bars only in-person scouting by athletics personnel. Although Stallions himself may qualify as personnel, for much of the conduct your email describes, there's no evidence that in-person scouting was committed by athletics personnel. 
We also cite section 1411H of the NCAA football rulebook, which bars any attempt to record either through audio or video means any signals given by an opposing player, coach, or other team personnel. But that rule plainly applies to field equipment deployed during games in which the institution participates and simply does not apply to any of Stallion's alleged conduct, allegedly on behalf of a team not involved in the contest. To the extent that you are also seeking to impose disciplinary action based on the head coach responsibility rule, which is procedurally improper, as we stated above, the rule has recently changed, meaning that different head coach responsibility standards would apply to different conduct depending on when the conduct occurred. You do not appear to have considered that issue at all. We are continuing to review the relevant rules and regulations, but disputes about the application of the rules to see the facts suggest that immediate adjudication is improper and imprudent. The state of the evidence, particularly given Michigan's current inability to evaluate and respond to the evidence, also makes disciplinary action premature. We have not seen or been provided virtually any of the evidence on which you purport to rely in your email. We have not seen any of the video videos allegedly taken for scouting purposes, and as far as we can glean from your email, you have not seen them either. The only evidence you have provided us is records of Stallion's ticket purchases and transfers and those tickets usage at games, and one unsolicited tip by an unidentified person who claims to have seen someone filming the sidelines at a game, that we are not able to identify either the tipster or the person they claim was filming the sidelines or confirm any connection to Stallion's. A link to a public article that shows a now-deleted video, which we have not seen, of Stallion's on the sidelines of a Michigan game, I'm a short video titled UMass versus PSU video that does not clearly show anything at all. The evidence you have actually provided to us is insufficient to prove the violations you allege, much less to allow Michigan to dispute particular points of fact or offer mitigation. Deciding whether to impose sanctions on whom and how severe requires an opportunity to actually contest or explain the evidence, which we have not seen. So I think, as we talked about at the start of this video, Michigan's doing a pretty good job here of saying, look, this is all in advance of where we should be with respect to this investigation. And we're not quite sure that these rules apply as we talked about in our earlier video in this, I guess, series now at this point. Your email also makes argumentative assertions that we have no way to evaluate, verify, or respond to, such as unsourced reports about what Stallions instructed others to do, characterizations of video recordings taken by those connected with Stallions that we have not seen, characterizations of purported surveillance footage of an individual recording the opposing sideline that the conference itself apparently has not seen, but was simply told exists, and photos and videos that you describe as in the public domain that you have not supplied, supposedly showing stallions adjacent to and communicating with coaches during games. We are not in a position to respond to these assertions and characterizations because we have provided no access to the underlying material. Remarkably, it appears that the conference itself is relying on recorded evidence that even the conference has not seen. And finally, your email also describes at great length purported evidence that you do not supply that is perfectly consistent with a benign explanation. You discuss at great length photos and videos that show stallions adjacent to and communicating with coaches during a game. A photo that you have not sent us in which you claim Stallions was looking intently in the direction of the opposing sideline during a Michigan game. Video of Stallions watching the opposing sideline during a Michigan game and then gesturing the Michigan defense in reaction. And video of Stallions standing shoulder to shoulder with defensive coordinator Jesse Mintner and talking to him while intently watching what was happening on the field and or on the TCU sideline. We have no way to evaluate whether you are accurately characterizing these photos and videos or provide alternative explanations. But more fundamentally, even as you describe them, none of this is evidence of wrongdoing. That Stallions was present on the sidelines of Michigan games or speaking to coaches or looking at the field or looking at the opponent is utterly meaningless. Without investigating the, the circumstances of each incident, there is no way to know what Stallions was focused on, what he said to those around him, and whether those incidents had anything to do with the allegations of in-person scouting or decoding opponent signals. Disciplinary action at this time would be highly disproportionate. I'm going to skip ahead to the next letter, I think, because you can see what Michigan is saying in this, in this regard, and we'll see how it's characterized by the Big Ten in just a minute. And then War Benuel, the athletic director of the University of Michigan, with a big old sweeping, I guess, W, 
uh, there. Interesting. Michigan takes all rules violations seriously and is fully cooperating with the NCAA's apparently thorough but expedited investigation. We also had Jim Harbaugh send a letter in respect of this saying much the same thing, in slightly different language. And then we have the Big Ten on November 10th, while Michigan is in flight to Pennsylvania, stating the following. Let's get this super chat here real quick. That Sarah, member for 15 months, remember back when the main Big Ten controversy was just should they let the Californians join the league? Simpler times. Honestly, if I'm USC and UCLA and some of the other Pac-12 teams that are joining the Big Ten, I'm looking at this a little bit concerned about the commissioner doing whatever the mob wants with respect to what's happening and not abiding by process protections. Because if I'm from California or the West Coast, I know I'm going to be outnumbered when I join the Big Ten and its historical members, period. So on November 10th, the Big Ten sends the following. The purpose of this letter is to provide formal notice that the Big Ten Conference is imposing disciplinary action against member institutions of the University of Michigan for violations of the conference's sportsmanship policy. The conference has reviewed the responses provided by the university and its head football coach to our November 4th, 2023 notice. That notice set forth the conference's belief that the university violated the sportsmanship policy because a university football staff member engaged in an organized, extensive, years-long, in-person advanced scouting scheme that was impermissible. The goal of this scheme was to gain an unfair advantage by stealing the signs of teams the university's football team was due to play later in the season. Such misconduct inherently compromises the integrity of competition. As the university is aware, the sportsmanship policy expressly provides that a member institution is responsible and therefore may be held accountable for the actions of its employees, coaches, student-athletes, general student body, and any other individual or group of individuals over whom it maintains some level of authority. We read that earlier in this video. And you can see that they're already changing their position a little bit on how they're trying to get to Harbaugh. The university is responsible so we can penalize the university. As detailed in sections one and two below, the extensive information obtained by the conference has led me, in my capacity as conference commissioner, to conclude that the university violated the sportsmanship policy. That policy requires the commissioner to determine the appropriate discipline as expeditiously as possible. Although the conference was able to inform other conference members before the October 21st games about the existence of an off-campus in-person scouting scheme for the purpose of stealing opponent's signs, the impermissible scheme, the effect on the opponents of the university's football team remains ongoing. And note the definitional slip here, right? So this is what lawyers do. This is this is what you'll see in a lot of documents. So we just said that there's a rules discussion happening as to whether or not this actually violates the rules as set forth in the current Big Ten rule book and the bylaws and those various things. And so what you do in, in this letter is the Big Ten commissioner defines what is happening as impermissible. It's just part of the definition. So he's going to refer to it as the impermissible scheme throughout this letter, which is subtle psychology here for how we're going to think about the scheme. But it's worth noting that neither the NCAA nor the Big Ten has actually gone through the process of evaluating the facts that they can prove and running them against the rules as we do in any kind of violation analysis. Notably, the university's November 8th response does not deny that the impermissible scheme occurred. Instead, it offers only procedural and technical arguments designed to delay accountability. So note how this is summarized now. We just read through the whole Michigan letter, and the Big Ten <clears throat> takes a fairly kind of emotional plea here and says, the University of Michigan is just making legal arguments. They're just procedural and technical arguments designed to delay accountability. Michigan has admitted to all of this, doesn't deny that the impermissible scheme occurred, when in fact they denied that they had any evidence showing that it occurred, and they said that they couldn't respond to what was even claimed by the NCAA or the Big Ten because they weren't provided the evidence in the first instance. The university also argues that because it believes that others are engaged in decoding signs, there must be nothing wrong with the university's activities. And I skipped a little bit of the letter, but that is not what they argued. 
In addition to impermissible activities or of others being currently unsupported by facts, the university's culpability is not dependent on the actions of other institutions. Those assertions are more fully addressed in sections three and five below. The integrity of competition is the backbone of any sports conference or league. That is especially true for sports contests between student athletes. Athletes compete to win. Competition that is only about winning while disregarding the rules of fair play diminishes all of us, including our institutions. The integrity of the competition must be preeminent. Its value is fundamental and far exceeds the value of winning. Indeed, it is the very source of any value of winning. Enforcing the sportsmanship policy with appropriate discipline this season in light of the university's established violations this season, that's stolen base, established violations this season, is thus of the utmost importance to protect the reputation of the conference and its member institutions and to ensure that our competitions on the field are honorable and fair. Now, interestingly, this paragraph says competition is super important and we need to protect the viability of competition and the integrity of that competition. And so I'm suspending the head coach of one of the teams while in flight to the game that they're going to play tomorrow. As described below, the existence of the impermissible scheme is proven. While other investigatory bodies continue to develop additional evidence of the scope, extent, and individual knowledge of the scheme that may advise additional or enhanced policy penalties in the future, taking immediate action is appropriate and necessary under the conference's sportsmanship policy. Having determined that the university violated the sportsmanship policy, the conference imposes on the university the following disciplinary action. Effective immediately, the university football team must compete without its head football coach for the games remaining in the 2023 regular season. This disciplinary action shall not preclude the university or its football team from having its head football coach attend practices or other football team activities other than the game activities to which it applies. So, again, the lawyers had a crack at this. Look at this. It is penalizing the University of Michigan by suspending Jim Harbaugh. It's not a penalty against Jim Harbaugh because what Michigan argued is basically correct. We don't have the ability to say that 11.1.1.1 actually should be applied through the sportsmanship policy. So we're going to penalize the university. How? By penalizing your head football coach. But Jim Harbaugh, who sent a letter that we skipped discussing just now, is going to have a fairly good case for, you can penalize the University of Michigan, but it's still my paycheck. It's still my coaching. It's still my team. And so you're actually penalizing me regardless of what you say in this letter. We impose this disciplinary action, even though the conference has not yet received any information indicating that head football coach Harbaugh was aware of the impermissible nature of the sign stealing scheme. This is a heck of a sentence, right? So we've got a couple things happening here. One, we've got this yet stolen in here, right? If we were doing this as a hangouts and headlines, you'd note that this assumes that he was and that we just haven't gotten the evidence yet. And then the actual language used here is aware of the impermissible nature of the sign stealing scheme, right? That Harbaugh was aware of it, but he might not have been aware that it was a rule violation. This is not a sanction of Coach Harbaugh because our lawyers say that it shouldn't be. It is a sanction against the university that under the extraordinary circumstances presented by this offensive conduct best fits the violation because it preserves the ability of the university's football student athletes to continue competing. And it recognizes that the head coach embodies the university for purposes of its football program. This is justification of a decision that was already made, right? This is lawyering trying to get around the fact that they don't actually have the authority to penalize someone who they can't show did anything. And so they say it's a penalty of the university and that Jim Harbaugh is the University of Michigan for this, for this purpose, which is going to be a difficult case to win in the long term. The conference recognizes that additional disciplinary actions may be necessary. Again, the investigation isn't over, so we reserve the right to do more. <clears throat> the, the extraordinary nature of the offending conduct and information obtained by the conference. A, the NCAA's initial call to the university and the conference about the scheme. On October 18th, 
the president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, Charlie Baker, the president, scheduled a call with me, other senior leadership from the conference, and senior leadership from the university. During that call, the NCAA disclosed to both the conference and the university that it had received highly credible evidence of a wide-ranging, multi-year, in-person, off-campus scouting scheme orchestrated by a non-coaching staff member of the university's football program. This is really interesting because it is outside of standard procedure for the NCAA to disclose facts of an ongoing investigation to a non-party to that investigation. The Big Ten, although Michigan is a part of that association, is not Michigan. So the president of the NCAA getting on a call with the president of the Big Ten, the commissioner of the Big Ten, as well as the university, is an unusual set of facts. There were several extraordinary aspects of this call. It is rare and outside the NCAA's typical protocols for the NCAA to disclose information about an active investigation to institutions other than the institution under investigation. Not only is it not typical, it's arguably a violation of the NCAA rules. However, the NCAA stated and believed that the disclosure was necessary due to the unprecedented scope of the then alleged scheme and because of the significant impact the impermissible scheme could have on competition during the current football season, right? So, well, we are violating our rules. We're, we're, we're skipping normal procedures because we got to go get the devil. It was also extraordinary that the NCAA president arranged for and participated in the call, underscoring not only the severity of the allegations, but the immediate impacts. All of these circumstances were a clear statement from the NCAA that the nature and reliability of the evidence they've received indicated the improper scheme relating to the university's football team was ongoing and created a substantial risk of compromising the integrity of football competitions this season. At that point, the university's football team had played seven games this season and had five more regular season games remaining. And Connor Stallions hasn't participated in any of the last three games, and Jim Harbaugh didn't participate in the last game. The conference's actions to protect the integrity of upcoming competitions. So before we get to that, I do want to point out that the Big Ten statement here to the University of Michigan is essentially that because the NCAA took this rare and unexpected, arguably protocol-violating step, we knew it was serious. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. Later on October 18th, two senior conference staff members and I participated in a call with the university's president, athletic director, and general counsel. During that call, I expressed my belief that disclosure of the impermissible scheme to the university's remaining 2023 football opponents was necessary to preserve players' safety and protect the integrity of those competitions. After significant discussion and at my insistence, the conference and the university agreed that the disclosures were necessary and appropriate. Also on October 18th, the university obtained consent from the NCAA to inform its football coaching staff of the NCAA's investigation a deviation from normal practice that was required in light of the extraordinary nature of the NCAA's description of the conduct and the in-season disclosures being provided to other conference members. That same evening, the conference informed the university's next football opponent, Michigan State University, of the information disclosed by the NCAA regarding the impermissible scheme. On October 19th, the conference similarly informed the university's remaining 2023 football opponents. The conference also consulted with U.S. Integrity, which confirmed the conference's view that immediate transparency about the information the conference had learned was important. And U.S. Integrity is a kind of gambling investigation firm, I believe. Later that day, the conference issued a press release stating that the conference at the university had been notified by the NCAA that it was investigating allegations of improper sign stealing by the university's football program. In that press release, the conference stressed that it considers the integrity of the competition to be of the utmost importance and that it would continue to monitor the investigation. Also on October 19th, pursuant to my request to see firsthand the credible evidence in the NCAA's possession, another senior level conference staff member and I participated in a video conference with the NCAA. During that video conference, the NCAA presented and discussed what it called a master spreadsheet that the NCAA had received during its investigation. And again, this language is very unclear to the outside reader and certainly to Michigan as they read through this as well. The NCAA had received from whom? What is the capacity of this spreadsheet? 
it included a very large amount of detailed information regarding the impermissible scheme, including without limitation, a large and detailed chart listing the names of various individuals assigned to attend past and future football games involving the university's scheduled football opponents, similar in-person attendance assignments for past and future games involving highly ranked non-conference football opponents, presumably potential university football opponents in postseason games, notations showing whether in-person attendance at non-conference games would be necessary depending on different win-loss scenarios, the 2023 game schedules of the university's scheduled football opponents, color coding to reflect past games actually attended by assigned individuals and future games for which individual assignments were still needed, the names of individuals assigned to certain cities and locations, and monetary amounts associated with certain assigned games. A separate worksheet within that master spreadsheet showed narrative translations of signs and signals that correspond to specific team formations and plays. The name of the university staff member alleged to have orchestrated the scheme, Connor Stallions, was prevalent in the master spreadsheet. So it's implied again that it's Connor Stallions spreadsheet, which is fine, but again, it doesn't really show a institutional derangement at the University of Michigan outside of this one particular individual. By October 20th, that staff member's name began appearing in media reports about the impermissible scheme. That day, I called the university's athletic director to determine whether the university was going to take any actions in response to the information disclosed by the NCAA. Later that day, the university suspended the staff member. The conference then received additional information from other sources. Between October 20th and November 4th, the conference received additional documentation from other conference members regarding the impermissible scheme. That documentation indicates that during 2021, 2022, and 2023 football seasons, the university staff member purchased tickets for off-campus football games involving future university opponents, including at least four games in 2021, 13 games in 2022, and five games during the first seven weeks of the 2023 season. Now, interestingly, if you've been following this story at all in the news, this is the sentence, this is the language that was leaked to various media sources around the country. So it does appear that the Big Ten at bare minimum has a certain leak problem with respect to this information. The tickets were strategically located near midfield facing the future opponent's sidelines. This documentation also showed that the staff member had forwarded certain tickets to a network of individuals, many of whose names matched those included in the master spreadsheet. The documents included game attendance information for forwarded and unforwarded tickets. In addition, the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference informed the conference that the university staff member had purchased tickets to the SEC football championship game in Atlanta. The conference has shared this information with both the university and the NCAA. So the Big Ten believes that Connor Stallions bought tickets and gave tickets to various people to watch the sidelines of these various games. And we don't really have a, a big reason to disbelieve that that is, in fact, what happened. We have certain concerns over exactly how that violates the rules and bigger concerns as to exactly how that should impact the University of Michigan on the whole and certainly Jim Harbaugh as an individual in insofar as this is applied. The conference also reviewed photos and videos from the public domain. We talked about those. On November 2nd, a senior conference staff member and I participated in a call with NCAA President Baker, other senior NCAA staff members, and the university's athletic director, general counsel, and outside counsel. Lots of lawyers. During that call, the NCAA informed the conference and the university that based on its investigation and the evidence that it had collected, the NCAA knew and could prove the following. Now, again, folks, if you've watched litigation, if you've watched anything in LawTube, on my channel, on my friends' channels, whatever it might be, you know that that's the prosecutorial stance. We have the evidence that proves the following. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But it is not the job of the defendant to just say, oh, they know and can prove it, huh? Well, I guess we should just do whatever it is that you say. The staff member participated in and coordinated a vast off-campus in-person advanced scouting scheme involving a network of individuals. They can prove a vast advanced scouting scheme? I don't even know what the legal definition of vast might be, so I'm not sure if you can prove it. He purchased and forwarded tickets for games involving future university football opponents, and the tickets were for seats strategically located for stealing the future opponent's signs. He and others acting at his direction video recorded signs used by future university opponents while attending the opponent's games in person. 
you're using the phrase in person here, but others acting at his direction is not the same as in person. So we, we do again come back to the rules. Information, including videos of future opponent signs, was delivered back to the staff member by those who had attended the games and taken the videos at his direction. So this is important. This means the NCAA thinks that they can show that those videos got back to Connor Stallions at minimum. During the time in question, including for the university's seventh game of the 2023 season, the staff member was present on the university sidelines, dressed similarly to university coaches in close proximity to university coaches. But again, it's fair to say that to the extent the scheme exists, that he was talking to coaches, but it doesn't in and of itself show any particular violation because there's lots of people that talk to the coaches and stealing signs itself is not a violation. Again, we come back to, is this an institutional control issue? And when Michigan submits that Ohio State and Purdue and Rutgers are sharing signs, it's not to suggest that everybody's equally violative of the rule. It's to say that when we talk about what we should know about, what a reasonable person would know is a problem, to the extent that you can steal signs without violating any of these rules, there's no reason to know that Connor Stallions is doing all of this. Unless you can dot that I, cr cross that T, connect those wires for us, this is not the kind of thing that Michigan necessarily has to take fully on its own and, and fall on its own sword, is their argument. In light of this information, the NCAA informed the university and me that the existence of the impermissible scheme by this university football staff member was uncontroverted. The NCAA indicated that it was continuing its investigation to determine, among other things, who else knew about and or was involved in the scheme. After this call, I held a call with the conference's athletic directors to brief them on the meeting with the NCAA and the university. Concerns were expressed about the continuing disadvantage of the university's opponents because they could no longer rely on their previous system of signs. Concerns were also expressed that there remained a greater risk to safety if the university's football team had been more effective at stealing future opponent signs through impermissible in-person scouting. That apparently the risk to safety of players is fine for these ways that we allow signs to be stolen because of cost control measures, at least as des described in the early 90s. But if you do this, if you have tickets given to other people around the country and you get iPhone videos, then people are more at risk in a health matter. And I, I don't know that I buy that. On the evening of November 2nd, an in-person meeting between myself and the university's president was scheduled for the following day. Despite the remarkable and definitive statements that the university and the conference had just received from the NCAA about what its evidence proved, the university president responded to my meeting request with an email contending that oral updates from NCAA enforcement staff do not and cannot constitute evidence. He further requested the conference stand pat and await the results of the NCAA investigation before imposing any disciplinary action. So President Ono of the University of Michigan says what we've just been saying in this video. Look, you're getting prosecutorial statements about what they can prove, but that doesn't have to be what we accept as your evidence of what we did. So do your own investigation. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about what rules apply. And until then, you should stand pat and wait for things to actually finish up. But this commissioner is getting pressure from all the rivals in Michigan. The next day on November 3rd, I met at the university with its president, who was accompanied by the university's general counsel and three members of the university's board of regents. That's the head. That's essentially the board of directors for the school. I asked the conference's general counsel and senior vice president of policy to join the meeting by video conference. During that meeting, the university's general counsel confirmed that the university had access to the master spreadsheet that the NCAA had presented. Also during the meeting, I informed the university that the evidence the conference had reviewed and collected caused me to believe the university had violated the conference's sportsmanship policy, but I had not yet made any final determinations or disciplinary decisions. On November 4th, the conference provided its formal notice to the university that the conference believed the university had violated the sportsmanship policy. Notice described specific evidence underlying the conference's belief. We looked at that November 4th letter. I will leave it to you to decide whether or not it provided specific evidence underlying the conference's belief. It stressed that these were not isolated or haphazard incidents. It alleged and claimed that, yes. 
The violations were pervasive, systemic, and occurred over multiple years. It also emphasized that compromising the integrity of the competition violates one of the most fundamental aspects of sportsmanship. Pursuant to Section 10.3 of the Sportsmanship Policy, the conference provided the university and its head football coach with an opportunity to respond by November 7th. The following day, the university requested an extension until November 8th and also requested certain additional documents and information. The conference agreed to the extension and provided documents and information in response to the university's requests. On November 8th, the university and its head football coach delivered their responses to the conference's notice. The university's response did not deny that the impermissible scheme occurred, but argued that the conference did not have the authority to enforce its own rules. For instance, the university argued that a rule authorizing the conference to impose additional penalties after an NCAA investigation, based on the final results of that investigation, actually prohibited the conference from enforcing an entirely different rule, the sportsmanship policy, anytime the NCAA was conducting an investigation, even though the rule in question does not say anything of the sort. And here's where I think you get a little bit more emotionality in the Big Ten's response. So Michigan's legal response was, you don't have the authority to hit Jim Harbaugh and you haven't conducted your own investigation and the NCAA is in the process of doing it. And that word subsequent has some meaning in your rules and not that you don't have the capacity to do anything that you like in your rules. But this is described by Big Ten Commissioner Petiti as Michigan essentially being a bad actor, right? They're, using, they're looking for technical and procedural loopholes and we're just trying to enforce the rules as we see fit because this is a big problem for everybody involved. The university also asserted in its response that it has not yet had an opportunity to review almost any of the evidence. This is a concerning statement to the conference in light of the extensive evidence provided to the university by the NCAA. This issue is more fully addressed below. H, the NCAA shares with the conference the evidence it had shared with the university in light of the university's statement that it had not reviewed almost any of the evidence. Given the university's statement that evidence was scant and the conference's assertions unsupported, the conference made affirmative efforts to verify the university's prior knowledge of and access to relevant evidence. Accordingly, pursuant to the mandatory cooperation provisions in the sportsmanship policy, the conference requested the university's consent to allow the conference to obtain from the NCAA all documents and information that the NCAA had made available to the university in connection with the investigation into the impermissible scheme. The university initially refused to provide such consent, citing confidentiality provisions in the NCAA's bylaws. The university also asserted that historically, the NCAA, to our knowledge, has not permitted disclosure. The conference prompted promptly obtained written confirmation from the NCAA that it did not object to providing such documents and information upon receiving the university's consent. The university ultimately provided its consent after receiving this written confirmation from the NCAA. Yeah, Michigan was playing lawyer ball here because the right is obviously the institutions and the NCAA wants consent from the university to share this information because, again, it's not normal NCAA procedure to share ongoing investigation materials with a third party, which the Big Ten is in this case. Michigan, I think probably wrongly, a little overly lawyerly says, well, no, the NCAA doesn't usually give that information, so we're not comfortable giving consent. And the NCAA says, no, if you give consent, we'll share it, but it's up to you. And the Big Ten says, okay, Michigan, give consent. And Michigan ultimately does. But I think Michigan was probably wrong to fight that particular fight. This additional evidence, including recorded interviews, photos, videos, and other documentation that had previously been provided to the university, confirms what the evidence already reviewed by the conference makes clear. The university football team staff member engaged in an organized and extensive in-person off-campus advanced scouting scheme, and that the staff member was in close communications with at least some of the coaches on the university's football team. This evidence also revealed significant new information from interviews that the university attended, information that is covered by confidentiality under the NCAA's rules, so as not, so as not discussed further here. So there's some more information that the Big Ten claims that Michigan knows. The university committed offensive action under the sportsmanship policy. The sportsmanship policy vests the conference commissioner with wide discretion, which we talked about. The commissioner has discretion to pursue or choose not to pursue an investigation as to whether an offensive action has occurred. He has the exclusive authority to determine whether an offensive action has been committed. 
And as part of this determination, the commissioner in his sole discretion may consider any evidence that he or she deems relevant and may accept any information provided by any source. Other than an involved institution's response to a notice of risk of disciplinary action, the commissioner has no formal obligation to consider any particular piece of evidence. <clears throat> if an offensive action has occurred, the commissioner shall have the authority to impose any disciplinary action in response to an offensive action. Upon determination that offensive action did occur, the commissioner is required as expeditiously as possible to determine whether and what disciplinary action should be imposed. Disciplinary actions imposed pursuant to section 10.3.3 shall be final and are not subject to appeal. Under the standards and discretion set forth in the sportsmanship policy and following careful review and consideration of the responses submitted by the university and its head football coach in accordance with the policy, I've determined that the university committed an offensive action. Specifically based on the totality of the information and evidence received and reviewed to date, including but not limited to documents and information received from the university, other conference member institutions, which are obviously self-interested, and the NCAA, including documents and information that the NCAA previously made available to the university that are now in the conference's possession, I've determined that a football staff member employed by the university engaged in an extensive and impermissible in-person off-campus advanced scouting scheme that compromised a fundamental element of sportsmanship, namely the integrity of competition within the conference. Under the express terms of the sportsmanship policy, the university is responsible for, and therefore may be held accountable for, the actions of its offending football staff member. And here's where the rules really get weird, right? Because the in-person off-campus advanced scouting scheme is not only not clearly in person when it's not Connor Stallions himself, but it's also unclear exactly how that differs from Ohio State sending the signs that it played in Michigan to Purdue or whatever happened with respect to the other schools in the conference vis-a-vis -vis the spirit of competition, right? You have to compromise a fundamental element of sportsmanship. Is it by violating this particular in-person rule? Is it by finding a loophole in that rule? It isn't by finding what the actual signs are of the opponent. So we again have that kind of foundational issue from the commissioner. To be clear, neither I nor the conference reached this determination based on rumor or mere summaries and descriptions of evidence as the university contends in its response. As discussed above, the conference has received and reviewed extensive documentation and information during the course of its investigation. This includes the master spreadsheet and other documents and information that the NCAA made available to the university and which the conference now has in its possession, notwithstanding the university's initial refusal to consent to the conference obtaining such materials from the NCAA. And again, this is a motion right here, right? There's no reason to include this regarding the initial refusal to consent. I don't think that was a good play by Michigan, but it doesn't change what the evidence says or doesn't say. This is just a commissioner and a conference essentially being emotional in its response. The conference takes exception to the university's suggestion in its response that any determination in this matter is based on prejudgment and bias. The conference does not play favorites among its members. It absolutely does, although in general, it's in favor of Michigan and Ohio State. Nor does it take actions towards its members based on prejudgment or bias. Failing to act under the extraordinary circumstances here could lead other conference members reasonably to conclude that the conference has chosen to favor the university over all other members. It's possible, but that's really your job as commissioner to make sure that everybody understands why the policies are what they are and what the protections mean. The responses from the university contend that the procedures in Rule 32 of the handbook must be followed whenever there is an alleged violation of NCAA or conference rules. That is wrong. The conference handbook has a set of procedures that govern actions that offend the elements of sportsmanship and another set of procedures that govern violations of NCAA and conference rules. The procedures set forth in the sportsmanship policy are available to the commissioner when, as here, the commissioner has become aware of conduct that, among other things, offends the integrity of competition. In such circumstances, the commissioner has the discretion to employ the summary procedure set forth in the sportsmanship policy rather than the slower moving procedure set forth in Rule 32. That is true, even where the offensive actions are premised on actual or potential violations of NCAA rules. And 
This is an assertion. I think you can absolutely read the sportsmanship policy to do this, but it isn't the kind of thing that I would be too terribly confident in if I were the Big Ten Conference, right? That you can just say, well, we wrote it really broadly, and even if it's based on a violation of the rules, the fact that there's another set of procedures for violation of the rules doesn't mean that I can't use the broadest powers that I have under the sportsmanship policy when it's never been used that way before. So they're asserting that the sportsmanship policy covers rule violations as well, if I deem it to be so. And I think the text of the policy can be read that way. And so I think that that's good lawyering on their part. But I don't think that in context of everything, including the handbook, it is the best, fairest reading of how this sportsmanship policy has been used in the past, what it was intended for, and what the parties to this particular contract thought they were signing when they signed it, which is the most important thing. Right. What do these parties actually think this does a meeting of the minds? Because everything else is overly broad. And that's going to be an, uh, an important question in the long term here. But I do think it's well argued here that it's broader than what Michigan suggests that it is. The plain language of the the plain language of the conference handbook and the sportsmanship policy read together makes this clear. It is true that Rule 32 sets procedures for adjudicating violations of NCAA and conference rules. But even before it details those procedures, Rule 32 expressly calls attention to Agreement 10 for policies and procedures on sports-like conduct. This confirms that the procedures in Rule 32 are not exclusive. This is further confirmed by the plain text of the sportsmanship policy. The very first section of that policy provides that all actions that are offensive to the integrity of competition, actions that offend civility and actions of disrespect, are punishable in accordance with the terms of this policy, which again, I think is a fair reading, but I don't think it actually changes the fact that what we're talking about here are potential rules violations and not kind of more amorphous social media posts or swearing or slurs or whatever else was referenced in the Michigan letter as being covered by the sportsmanship policy. So this is a novel application based on actual rules in the NCAA bylaws in the Big Ten handbook. And it's worth pointing that out if you're the University of Michigan. And I think it's worth adjudicating at some level, whether it's through the conference or, as we will see, the state courts in just a minute. This language could not be clearer. Uh, it absolutely could. Virtually every bit of language in all of these documents could be clear. When sportsmanship issues, including the integrity of competition, are implicated by the offensive conduct, the commissioner is authorized to use the procedures and authority prescribed by the sportsmanship policy, even if that offensive conduct also may involve a violation of NCAA or conference rules. Perhaps, but then you have a different onus, right? You want to say that's an impermissible scheme. It's impermissible because of the rules. Otherwise, you absolutely have to show how it's a violation of sportsmanship and competition and the integrity of that competition, which becomes much more unclear when it's pointed out that basically all these institutions have each other's signs in some capacity or another. The university's response does not address the plain language of Rule 32 and the sportsmanship policy. Instead, the university reasons as follows. Rule 32 governs punishment for violations of NCAA or conference rules. The conference's notification of potential action expressly premises a sportsmanship policy investigation on alleged violations of those rules. Therefore, the commissioner must comply with Rule 32 before imposing on the university any punishment under the sportsmanship policy. But that argument has at least three fatal flaws. First, it misreads the conference November 4th notice. It is true that the notice references violations of certain rules, and it is also true that the potential violation of these rules prompted the commissioner's sportsmanship investigation. But the notice was clear that the risk of disciplinary action stems from a violation of the sportsmanship policy. We said the right legal stuff. I've concluded that the university engaged in an impermissible scheme resulting in unfair games on unequal terms and compromised player safety. Nothing offends the integrity of competition more than attempting to gain an unfair advantage through impermissible means. It does not matter whether the NCAA ultimately finds the violations of, the, of its finds that violations of its rules occurred, though it has already communicated to the conference the fact that the impermissible scheme is uncontroverted. 
The sportsmanship policy applies to any conduct that affects the integrity of competition. Such conduct undoubtedly occurred here. So despite all this reference to it being impermissible, despite us saying impermissible a bunch of times, even if the NCAA ultimately finds that there are no violations, we, we hold fast to our authority under the sportsmanship policy to find a problem here in any event. And that's got to really put a chill down the spine of various Big Ten members and especially various future Big Ten members because the commissioner can just decide that whatever it is that you did, if you're right up on the edge of a rule or you find a loophole or otherwise, is a violation, regardless of whether the NCAA finds a violation, is not a great thing for a voluntary association of universities to have on its shoulders, right? You, you don't want to be the University of Southern California and have something that looks like it follows all the rules be decided is unfair by a commissioner in some ivory tower somewhere. And while I think that Michigan's scheme here is not great and probably that Michigan should be punished to some extent for it, I don't think that this is what you want to see from your commissioner vis-a-vis -vis how they are interpreting these things. Look at this sentence. It does not matter whether the NCAA ultimately finds that violations of its rules occurred. I found that it's not sportsmanship, so I am the god, king, emperor of man. I don't have to follow Rule 32, and you have to listen to what I say. Second, the university argument treats Rule 32 and the actions of the NCAA as disabling the conflicts, acting through its commission to act expeditiously to preserve the integrity of competition. By its terms, Rule 32.2.2c applies after the NCAA has concluded its investigation and permits the conference to impose sanctions in addition to those levied by the NCAA. University's reading treats the initiation of action by the NCAA as tying the conference's hands. That would effectively neuter the sportsmanship policy, which takes great pains to repeatedly emphasize the importance of the commissioner's discretion in ensuring compliance with the conference's high standards of sportsmanship, which leaves no doubt that the commissioner's determinations are not subject to appeal, and which repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the commissioner's ability to act expeditiously in preserving those standards. It only ties its hands if the NCAA has started the investigation and is the one that informs the Big Ten that there's an investigation in the first place. Third, the university's position that Rule 32's procedures apply to violations of the sportsmanship policy is also inconsistent with this policy's history. The sportsmanship policy in effect before 2013 provided a different set of procedures for investigating and punishing sportsmanship violations. Effective in the fall of 2013, the conference amended the policy to address concerns that it was poorly suited for operating in an environment of constant and instantaneous coverage of athletics because investigations could stretch out for weeks or months. Yes, again, they wanted to address the social media issue, but it's not the case here that, that this particular impermissible scheme shouldn't be justified by a big complex investigation, right? You want to get this one right. In contrast to the lengthy drawn out process for investigating and adjudicating sportsmanship violations, the amended sportsmanship policy vested the commissioner with the authority to address potential violations quickly under a set of streamlined procedures. Although institutions had an opportunity to be heard, the newly enacted sportsmanship policy provided that the commissioner's decisions would be final and not subject to appeal. And again, that's fine as far as it goes, but not subject to appeal doesn't get you out of a court interpreting whether or not you violated your own rules. University's arguments regarding the sportsmanship policy's purpose and traditional use also lack merit. The type and scope of the university's impermissible conduct at issue here is unprecedented. Furthermore, while the types of sportsmanship policy investigations referenced by the university involve other aspects of sportsmanship described in section 10.01, none of that conduct involved the fundamental element of integrity of competition. Every member of the conference, including the university, has agreed to the sportsmanship policy, and the commissioner is bound to follow and apply it. Under the terms of the policy, the commissioner has the exclusive authority to determine whether an offensive action has occurred and to determine whether disciplinary action is appropriate. Yes. And the assumption by the institutions in the voluntary association of the Big Ten is that the commissioner, commissioner will be a sober and rationally minded adjudicator of these things for the benefit of the conference and its membership. In this particular case, what you have is the commissioner deciding that this is a problem for sportsmanship 
on its own, regardless of what the rules say and whether or not there's a violation of the rule. And it needs to be done now, despite the fact that the Big Ten doesn't appear to have engaged in its own investigation outside of collecting information from the NCAA. So it's a little bit unclear how this all works together because the NCAA is collecting information about whether there's a rules violation for the NCAA. The Big Ten says the NCAA rules don't matter for this and that we can just decide that this is unfair and Michigan has to accept it. The universities claim that it had reviewed almost no evidence. The conference is highly concerned about the university's statements in its November 8th response, that it had not yet had an opportunity to review almost any of the evidence, and that from what we can tell, your notice largely relies on rumor. We know from the evidence provided to the conference by the NCAA on November 9th that the university had been provided the master spreadsheet, numerous, numerous other corroborating documents, photographs and videos, and significant interview recordings, all of which confirm the existence of the impermissible scheme. This includes, as early as October 31st and November 1st, at least three university officials attending NCAA interviews during which details of the impermissible scheme were revealed. That knowledge preceded the above-referenced November 2 call with the NCAA in which the university participated, during which the NCAA stated it knew and could prove the existence of the impermissible scheme. We assume the university's first comment did not mean that it and its counsel had not taken the time to review the documents. The university appears to suggest that imposition of discipline is inappropriate because the university claimed it had seen almost no evidence. But given the extensive evidence the university was in fact provided by the NCAA, it cannot possibly be true that the university had not seen almost any of the evidence. The evidence the university had should, should have allowed it to determine for itself the clear basis for concluding that the imp impermissible scheme occurred. And the combination of the extensive evidence the university had and the conference's reference on November 4th to specific categories of evidence that it had reviewed surely allowed the university to know that the conference was not largely relying on rumor. Under Section 10.2.2 of the Sportsmanship Policy, if the commissioner determines that an offensive action has occurred, the commissioner has the authority to impose any disciplinary action in response to the, effects, the offensive action. Section 10.3.3.2 provides that disciplinary actions that exceed those listed in 10.3.301 must receive prior approval by the conference's joint group executive committee. Review and action by the JGEC must occur as expeditiously as possible, and its decisions are final and not subject to approval. appeal. In deciding whether to impose disciplinary action, Section 10.2.3 provides a non-exhaustive list of factors the commissioner may consider. We looked at those. The conference is unmoved by the university's attempt to downplay its impermissible conduct by asserting that other conference members may have engaged in sign coding. Again, this is a straw man kind of false description of what the University of Michigan was even saying with respect to other conference members. It's a notion of whether or not competition is implicated and whether or not Jim Harbaugh or the institution should have any reason to believe that Connor Stallions was doing this crazy thing. As the university readily admits in its response, it does not know the exact methods that it alleges other teams use to decode its own signs. The conference has not received any information that any other team member schools engaged in impermissible advanced in-person scouting, let alone a scheme of the size and scale like the one at issue here. Yes, it's certainly that they did it differently than Connor Stallions, as pretty much anybody should, but it doesn't really come to the, to the, to the foundational question of whether or not competition was implicated, which is if you're going to base it on competition and not the rules that the NCAA has put forth, then you have to make sure that you are clean on that particular issue here. So it does matter what signs everybody has and how they got them. The conference is unaware of any active NCAA investigations into impermissible advanced scouting involving other members of the conference, but that's not the point. Should the conference become aware of such impermissible conduct, it will take appropriate action. However, the conference vehemently rejects any defense by the university or any other conference member that cheating is acceptable because other teams do it too. Again, sign decoding is not cheating, right? So how it was done is the question here. Another factor that the commissioner may consider is an injury or damage that results from the offensive action, separate from both the damage to the reputational integrity of the conference and its member institutions and damage from past and ongoing competitive disadvantage. Physical injury is also a significant concern here. 
While the conference is currently not aware of any physical injuries that resulted from the impermissible scheme, numerous coaches and athletic directors from other member institutions expressed concerns to me about the increased risk of injury to student-athletes resulting from the scheme. I have a responsibility to give serious consideration to those concerns. I find it credible that impermissible advanced scouting increases the risk of injury to student-athletes because if you know what play your opponent is running, then you also know where your opponent's players will be on the field. That's pretty nutty, honestly. I suggest the commissioner is not really a football fan so much. Although the university attempted to downplay and disregard these safety concerns in its response, I am not willing to do so. And this is one of those areas where you just say, um, I mean, okay, boss, but to the extent people have signs, people have signs. You can say this one was just so darn effective that it risks injury, but then you have to prove that it was effective. And that's where the evidence is lacking, right? Connor Stallions and what he did was crazy and it might've been illegal and it might be a violation of competition rules, but did it affect a change in the competition levels of these games such that people were at risk of injury? The, main, the biggest injuries last year in the Big Ten were to the Michigan football team and Blake Corum in particular. Another factor that the commissioner may consider is the response of and or any action taken by any other entity that may have jurisdiction over the offensive action. As discussed above, the conference's investigation began when the NCAA's president took the extraordinary step of notifying the conference and the university of its active investigation expressly because of the unprecedented scope of the impermissible scheme. The NCAA has also communicated to the conference that it knows and can prove that the impermissible scheme occurred and the evidence that is proved to the conference and the university supports that statement. The Connor Stallions did these things. Yes. Because the university's impermissible conduct, you can't the word impermissible can't just be thrown around, Commissioner, impacted the integrity of competition this season. I've determined that the resulting disciplinary action should be imposed this season in order to protect the integrity of the conference and its competition. Numerous coaches have informed me that the signs and signals cannot be quickly or easily changed, and I find those statements credible. Thus, the inherent and unfair advantage gained from the impermissible scheme may still exist, which further justifies punishment this season. For the reasons expressed herein, I have determined that the following disciplinary action against the university is appropriate. Effective immediately, the university football team must compete without its head football coach for the games remaining in the 2023 regular season. The conference provided the university and the head football coaches responses to the JGEC and asked it to confirm whether the sportsmanship policy may be used in these circumstances. On November 10th, the JGEC confirmed by vote that the conference may rely upon and enforce the sportsmanship policy in the circumstances presented by this investigation. Because this disciplinary action constitutes major disciplinary action under the sportsmanship policy, I sought and received approval for such discipline from the JGEC. So the Big Ten JGEC group, the ADs and co coaches of various other schools within the Big Ten, said, yep, this is A-OK, -okay, and the Big Ten acted on that. And that's what we have so far in legal land. But Michigan said, hey, we're going to look at this legally because we don't think any of this is right. And basically on the day that this was done by the Big Ten, they filed a request for injunctive relief. Now, in virtual legality here on this channel, we've talked about injunctive relief. We've talked about temporary restraining orders. We've talked about preliminary injunctions extensively, but primarily in the world of corporate law, Epic versus Apple, the FTC versus Microsoft and Activision and things of that nature. What's important to note about temporary restraining orders and preliminary injunctions is that those are equitable powers of a court and that a court is always going to be conservative in the application of its equitable powers because this is really the court stepping in, butting its nose in where private parties are doing their thing. And I say conservative, not from a political standpoint, but conservative in a reluctance to use this power until certain thresholds are met. We've talked about this. This is irreparable harm. This is a likelihood to succeed on the merits. This is the public interest. And we'll see exactly what Michigan argued for here. Now, I was looking for this document publicly. I do want to mention I uh, couldn't find it publicly. I had to go through back channels to get these documents. So apologies that these won't be separately linked in the description to this video. But we will talk about 
what the University of Michigan argued as of Friday of last week. We'll also talk a little bit about why the TRO didn't get granted in time to get Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines of the Penn State game and why that doesn't really speak to the overall strength or weakness of the Michigan case or the Big Ten's case. <clears throat> this case arises out of the defendant Big Ten Conference Inc.'s decision to suspend the head coach of the University of Michigan football team without providing the university or Harbaugh any of the basic due process protections incorporated into the conference rules. On November 10th, 2023, let's see if we can make this a little bigger for everybody. The conference stated that it was suspending coach Jim Harbaugh for three games because a former junior staff member allegedly breached an NCAA rule prohibiting in-person scouting of opponents in order to videotape signal calls. That allegation is the subject of an ongoing NCAA investigation in which no findings have been issued. The conference takes this precipitous action as the university is poised to compete for a national championship, threatening the loss of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for dozens of student-athletes and irreversible harm to the university and Harbaugh's reputation. And again, as we've talked about when we talk about equitable powers before, irreparable harm is important. The law believes that it can solve most things that can be solved with money, right? You can go ask the Big Ten to pay uh, lost wages if it proves to be a problem. You can go ask for even the box office receipts to be filled if somehow Michigan were impacted in that way or anybody else. But to the extent that the law can't give you another chance to play Penn State this last Saturday or Ohio State in two weeks or to get a national championship with the team as it stands right now, those are the kinds of things that do stand for irreparable harm. The law doesn't have a way to, to fix those things or to make somebody whole after they happen. So, <coughs> so you can see Michigan here first arguing that there's going to be irreparable harm here. The conference takes this action despite utterly failing to conduct any genuine investigation, much less the investigatory and adjudicatory process required by its own rules. By way of example, the conference has not interviewed a single witness from the University of Michigan. And while the conference may have access to some recordings of interviews conducted in the NCAA's investigation, that investigation has yet to interview the junior analyst or the head coach. So Michigan is asserting here in court, where it's very unlikely that they are lying, that the Big Ten has not investigated, nor has the NCAA, Connor Stallions himself or Jim Harbaugh. Moreover, the conference purports to impose a sanction that it lacks any contractual authority to issue because the conference has provided no evidence that Coach Harbaugh directed or knew about the underlying alleged scouting violation. This is no surprise. Without a meaningful investigation, how could it? This shoot-first, ask-questions-later approach to sanctions is a flagrant breach of fundamental fairness. It is also a breach of the Big Ten Conference rules, which constitute a binding contract between the parties, or in the alternative, are binding under the doctrine of promissory estoppel, meaning that if it's not constituting a contract under the law, everybody has agreed to treat it like one. So it's treated as a quasi-contract where everybody agrees to the promises put forth therein. And so we can hold it as a contract in a court of law like this one. The potential harm and loss of opportunity to the university and its constituents cannot be overstated. Immediate relief is required to preserve the status quo. So they're asking for an emergency restraining order on the Big Ten's effort to suspend Jim Harbaugh. Plaintiff, the Boards of Regents of the University of Michigan governs the University of Michigan. Yes, when the University of Michigan appears in court or in contracts, it goes by the Regents of the University of Michigan. So this is the school itself. It is an arm of the state of Michigan. The university is a public research university headquartered in Ann Arbor. Its football team, the Michigan Wolverines, compete in the conference. Plaintiff Harbaugh is the head coach of the Michigan Wolverines football team. Defendant Big Ten Conference is a collegiate athletic conference. It is a nonprofit corporation incorporated in Delaware and headquartered in Illinois. Defendant Tony Petiti is the conference commissioner. You have jurisdiction. It's a proper venue. The Big Ten Conference and its members agreed to follow and be bound by conference rules, including the enforcement's procedures. The Big Ten Conference is a collegiate sports organization comprised of the university and 13 of its athletic rivals. Each of the schools admitted to the conference is a member of the conference's corporation, and each school's president or chancellor sits on the corporation's board of directors. 
Like any joint enterprise undertaken by rivals, the conference relies on agreed upon and consistently enforced rules to function. By joining the conference, each school agrees to follow and be bound by the corporation's bylaws. Those bylaws incorporate the Big Ten Conference Handbook, which itself must be approved by the conference's board of directors. And that handbook contains the rules of organization and procedure that the conference and each member school agree to follow and be bound by. One of the handbook's most critical components is the process through which the conference enforces its rules on member institutions and other constituents, including coaches and student athletes. Each member school in the conference itself agrees to be bound by that enforcement process. And each member school expects and has the right to demand that the conference follow the enforcement process and treat the school and its constituents fairly. The stakes are high. As part of the bargain, each school grants to the conference the power to investigate its students, coaches, staff, and the school itself. Each school promises to comply with and cooperate with those investigations and to hand over evidence in its possession. And each school grants to the conference the power to punish not only the school itself, but its students, coaches, and staff. The conference can bar students and staff members from participating in a sport, bar the school from scheduling or participating in games or championships, force the school to forfeit games, strip a school of its right to televise its games, impose fines on students, coaches, and schools, or deny the school the right to its share of in-conference revenue. These potential penalties can and do have enormous consequences for the students, coaches, and staff who are subject to them, not to mention the schools themselves. Given the stakes, it is no surprise that the schools insist that the enforcement process provides various binding procedural protections that the conference is required to follow. The university relied on the conference's promise to abide by these standards when it agreed to enter the conference, chose to remain a member of the conference, and allowed its student-athletes to participate in conference events. It relied on these procedures when creating its own compliance and response programs to ensure that it mitigates and resolves conflicts in accordance with the handbooks and bylaws. Like football itself, an athletics conference cannot function without rules that both sides agree to. What makes the venture possible is the party's commitment to those rules, particularly when there is a dispute. It's an interesting paragraph given what Michigan's accused of, yes? The university would not have agreed to join nor remain a member of the conference if it did not believe the conference would protect the institution, its coaches, and its players by adhering to the bylaws and handbook. The handbook establishes the principle that a case, whether major or secondary, shall be administered primarily by either the Big Ten or NCAA because it is the policy of the conference's enforcement program to avoid duplication and increase consistency. In complex cases like this one, the NCAA is often the preferred organization to determine the facts and penalty because of its superior resources and experience. For that reason, when, as here, a case has been initiated by the NCAA, Rule 32 of the handbook requires that the conference will cooperate with the university and NCAA representatives in the processing of that case through the normal NCAA investigation hearing and appeals process. While the case will be processed through normal NCAA channels, the Conference Compliance and Reinstatement Committee shall review the case and may impose additional penalties, if warranted, subsequent to the NCAA action. And there's your highlight on subsequent. Thus, the proper process when there is a pending NCAA investigation is for the conference to cooperate with the NCAA investigation while the case is processed through normal NCAA channels and to impose any additional punishment subsequent to the NCAA action, not to conduct a parallel investigation or issue penalties before any investigation is concluded. So this is the legal argument towards why they're going to win on the merits, that they're in violation of their own contracts. And again, this is a difficult case for Michigan to win on its own because courts are reluctant to impose their own judgment on what a voluntary association's bylaws or other organizing documents say when the lawsuit is against the party itself, right? So we're talking about the Big Ten Conference and its own rules. The court is going to give a certain amount of deference to the Big Ten's interpretation of what its own rules say, and that Michigan agreed to this broad sportsmanship policy as a, for instance, as part of this entrance into the Big Ten, a court in the long run is going to be largely deferential to the Big Ten, but it doesn't mean that the Big Ten has complete and total authority to do whatever it likes under any of these things. In addition to a process for adjudicating violations of rules, the handbook contains a process for adjudicating unsportsmanlike conduct. We talked about that. Unlike the Rule 32 process, the sportsmanship policy provides a truncated investigatory and decisional process 
no clear standards and the lack of any right to appeal. So this is Michigan prepping for it should be void for vagueness, essentially. That it's it's too vague, it's too broad. Under this sportsmanship policy, the commissioner has discretion whether to pursue or not to pursue an investigation of an alleged violation and then to, quote unquote, determine whether an offensive action occurred. Any involved institution or individual at risk of disciplinary action is entitled to an opportunity to offer its position on whether an offensive action occurred and the time frame within which an institution or individual shall provide its, its or his or her position shall be set by the commissioner and shall be reasonable in light of the circumstances. The commissioner must notify a school if it is at risk of disciplinary action. The commissioner under the sports policy has discretion to impose almost any disciplinary action, though actions above a certain threshold require the JGEC. The sportsmanship policy thus permits the commissioner alone to decide whether to conduct an investigation. Agreement 10.3.4 requires the conference to perform an annual review of sportsmanship policy investigations in the last three years worth of sportsmanship investigations for which information is readily available. Those inf- investigations invariably involve offenses such as disparaging public comments, etc. Connor Stallions comes under investigation. Connor Stallions worked for the Michigan Wolverines football team in 2021 as a junior volunteer analyst. The university hired Stallions in May 2022 to work for the team as a football analyst. In October 2023, the NCAA began investigating the Michigan Wolverines football team for an alleged violation of NCAA bylaw 11.6.1 arising from Stallions' conduct, parenthetical in-person scouting. On October 18, 2023, the NCAA informed the conference and the university that it was investigating that alleged violation. On October 20th, the university suspended Stallions' employment with the football team. On information and belief, the NCAA expects to complete its investigation by the end of fall 2023. On November 3rd, 2023, Stallions resigned from his analyst position with the Michigan football team. On November 3rd, 2023, in a meeting between representatives of the university and the conference, Commissioner Petiti expressed concern regarding the mounting pressure from other conference members, coaches, athletic directors, and presidents and chancellors to immediately sanction the university and Coach Harbaugh for Mr. Stallion's actions. On November 4th, 2023, conference officer Chad Hawley emailed university representatives to announce the conference's belief that both the university and Coach Harbaugh had violated the sportsmanship policy because of Mr. Stallion's actions. In doing so, the conference accused Stallions of coordinating a quote-unquote scheme to perform quote-unquote in-person advanced scouting of opponents. In most alleged cases, Stallions allegedly purchased tickets to opponents' games and transferred them to others who would attend the games and allegedly video record the sidelines of the field. Those persons would then send the sideline videos to Stallions who allegedly would use the video to decode opponent signals. In some cases, Stallions allegedly may have attended opponents' games himself. Mr. Hawley's email was the first formal notice to the university that the conference was considering disciplinary action, either before the conclusion of the NCAA's investigation or outside the process established by Handbook Rule 32. The notice expressly based the sportsmanship violation on alleged violations of the NCAA and conference rules. And we, we looked at that letter, so we don't have to read it again. Mr. Hawley's email generally described purported evidence possessed or viewed by the conference that it claimed supported its allegations of rules violations. The conference did not send any of the purported evidence at that time. Indeed, it appears that even the conference had never seen some of the evidence on which it relied in its notice, nor has the conference interviewed a single witness from the University of Michigan. Although the conference may have access to audio recordings or transcripts of interviews conducted by the NCAA, even the NCAA itself has yet to interview Coach Harbaugh or Mr. Stallions. Mr. Hawley's email notified the university that both the university and Coach Harbaugh were at risk of disciplinary action under the sportsmanship policy. Mr. Hawley expressly premised the alleged violation of the sportsmanship policy on alleged violation of three explicit rules. He claimed Mr. Stallion's conduct violated NCAA bylaw 11.6.1, NCAA football rule 1411H, and the conference's football game management manual, section 14A. Despite describing no evidence suggesting that Coach Harbaugh himself committed an offensive action, Mr. Hawley claimed that the conference could hold Coach Harbaugh accountable for Stallion's conduct Pursuant to the NCAA head coach responsibility rule, NCAA bylaw 11.1.1.1. 1. 1. 1. 1. 
This position conflicts with the sportsmanship policies, responsibility and accountability section, which gives the commissioner authority to punish only individuals who committed offensive acts and the institutions responsible for the individuals who committed that conduct. Although the conference based its notice against the university and coach Harbaugh on violations of explicit rules, the conference made no apparent attempt to comply with the procedures of rule 32. On information and belief, the conference's compliance and reinstatement committee has not determined that there is a reasonable basis to believe a major violation may have occurred, as Handbook Rule 32 requires before commencing either preliminary or an official inquiry. On information and belief, Conference Commissioner Petiti has not provided the compliance and reinstatement committee a report summarizing the allegations, evidence, and re relevant rules, as Handbook Rule 32 requires before the imposition of any penalty. The university has not been provided all the evidence the conference purports to rely on. The evidence the university has seen from the conference does not prove the allegations. Because of that evidentiary deficiency, the university has not been provided an opportunity to respond meaningfully to the conference's factual allegations or arguments about the application of the rules. Before the university's deadline to respond to the conference's allegations, widespread media reporting suggested the conference was considering immediately suspending Coach Harbaugh. Media reports also observed mounting pressure from, off, from other conference members and from some conference members of the public for Petiti to act quickly. The university responded to the conference's allegations on November 8th, 2023. Its response cautioned the conference to refrain from immediate disciplinary action and to comply with its contractual obligations to the university. On November 10th, 2023, Commissioner Petiti purported to suspend Coach Harbaugh for three games. The commissioner's correspondence is included in Exhibit D. Pursuant to his employment agreement with the university, of which the conference was aware, Coach Harbaugh expected to coach his team through the remainder of the season. The plaintiffs face irreparable harm. The conference's decision to punish the university and immediately suspend Coach Harbaugh is causing and will cause, continue to cause irreparable harm to plaintiffs and university constituents. Most obviously, the reputational harm caused by the conference's conduct is enormous and quintessentially irreparable. The university itself, its student-athletes, Coach Harbaugh, and the athletics program will suffer significant, lasting, and unjustified reputational injury if the conference is permitted to impose a sanction in advance of a full and fair investigation. Michigan prides itself on fairness and integrity. Indeed, it does. It is dedicated to following all of the NCAA and Big Ten conference rules and is cooperating with the NCAA's investigation. In fact, Michigan's pride and arrogance, depending on where you're coming from with respect to the Michigan Wolverines, is part of this story. It's one of the reasons why there is such a call to action is that Michigan is known for kind of preening on its high horse about following rules, etc. Such a reputational hit would have a negative effect on athletic recruitment, including both the university's ability to attract top high school talent and retain the players already on its team. This is to say nothing of the irreparable harm suspension will cause Coach Harbaugh personally. No more dramatic blow could be given to his character and reputation than a permanent lifetime label of missing in action because of a purported but still unsubstantiated cheating scandal. The harm to the university's student-athletes would be irre irreversible. Foundational to the entire enterprise of collegiate athletes is a recognition of the value of participation in athletics as part of the formational and educational experience. The university offers that experience to its students, including the many student-athletes on its football team. Coaching is an enormous part of that. As legendary Notre Dame football coach Eric Parsidian aptly said, a good coach will make his players see what they can be rather than what they are. This type of relationship is not built overnight and it is core to student athletes, educational and formational experience, which is a critical part of the university's educational offering. And here, this is, this is again, this is, this is how Michigan talks. This is why we get ourselves in trouble with respect to the internet and otherwise, right? This is a little bit highfalutin and overblown for this. It's irreparable damage because Jim Harbaugh won't be on the sidelines to teach players who they can be, right? It's very, very much Rudy. You can cue the Rudy music. I don't know that that's a very effective argument, but it, it's necessary for the irreparable harm concept to suggest that coaching and being coached is something that can't get be gotten back, right? You only have a certain amount of eligibility. You only have a certain number of games in a season. You only have a certain number of Saturdays uh, within that season to actually do this on game day. And so this is important to those student athletes. I probably wouldn't have made it quite so Hallmark Cardi if I were writing it, but 
different strokes for different lawyers. No pun intended. Suspension of Coach Harbaugh deep into the team season would dramatically and irreparably harm his and his students' athlete chances of success. This is not merely conjecture. A study out of the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy found that coaches account for 20 to 30% of the variation in team outcomes. This is particularly pronounced in college football, where coaches significantly affect points scored, points allowed, point differential, and victories. Jim Harbaugh is a good football coach. You keep him off the sideline, Michigan's going to be a worse football team at some level. The success of this season's football team only elevates the irreparable harm. Now 9-0 on the season, now 10-0 actually, it is undisputed that the team is in contention for the National and Conference Championship. Standing between the university and a chance at this extraordinary opportunity for the university and its students are three Big Ten Conference games against highly ranked Penn State, the University of Maryland, and Ohio State University. For the seniors on the Michigan team, this will be their last contest against these rival conference schools and their last chance to compete for a conference and national championship. These are once-in-a-lifetime events. The games cannot be replayed. And that's the right argument for irreparable harm. The law can't fix that. An injunction poses zero risk of continuing misconduct or further ramifications from past misconduct. No current member of the university coaching staff is alleged to have been involved in improper in-person scouting. There's no evidence of any risk that improper in-person scouting will continue. Even if it were somehow possible that other members of the university's coaching staff retained information about other teams' prior signals, a possibility the conference is not alleged and for which there's no evidence, it would not benefit the university because most teams will switch up their signals from week to week, according to a Pat Ford article in Sports Illustrated from 2020. Entitled, The Totally Legal Art of Signal Stealing. In any case, although the prohibition on in-person scouting seems to derive from a concern with sign stealing, a term that connotes an unfair competitive advantage, sign stealing itself, the practice of decoding opponents' play signals, is legal under NCAA and conference rules. It is also standard practice and becoming increasingly common. Teams regularly review publicly available footage as the NCAA recognized when considering removing the in-person scouting restriction altogether. Division 1 Proposal 2021-32. That televised broadcast, all 22 and social media footage often shows sideline views that include school signals. Recent accounts have suggested that the alleged signal decoding is more widespread than previously realized. And here's an ESPN article. So count one, we, we're going to win on this because of breach of contract. The university repeats and realleges the allegations in this complaint incorporates them by reference. The conference's bylaws and handbook constitute a contract between parties, including Michigan and the conference. The conference's allegations of misconduct implicate the protections of Rule 32. Commissioner Petiti has imposed discipline on the Wolverines football team and Coach Harbaugh without conforming to the process in Rule 32, thus the contract is breached. The university repeats and realleges the allegations in this complaint for breach of contract implied covenant of good faith. So we've talked about this before in this space as well, but we are human beings all, even lawyers. I know it's, it's a surprise to some, but contracts cannot be written to cover every possible thing that could happen in the universe. And so every contract is entered into with an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, which basically means that the parties agree to use the bulk of the contract as it was intended and not to search for little ways to get around various contract bits. And again, I do note the irony of Michigan arguing for rules violations around the edges and saying that the Big Ten can't impose this particular penalty because it's not in comport with the contract and they're looking for edge cases themselves. Whether rule 32 or the sportsmanship policy govern the allegations of misconduct at issue here, each would be do each would do so subject to an implied covenant of good faith by imposing discipline on the Michigan Wolverines football team and on coach Harbaugh under the sportsmanship policy for alleged violations of enumerated rules. The conference has exercised its purported discretion in bad faith and by failing to abide by rule 32 or provide reasonable process required under the handbook under any policy, the conference has acted in bad faith. Thus, the conference breached a contract between the conference and the university, both by its terms itself and as a violation of its obligation to conduct itself in good faith and fair dealing. 
Next, we have promissory estoppel, which is, hey, if this isn't a real contract, then you still are going to be bound by its terms because we've all depended and operated as if it is a contract and breach of fiduciary duty. Defendant Petiti is responsible for breaching the fiduciary duty he owes the university as commissioner. The university reasonably relied upon Commissioner Petiti to act in good faith towards the university in light of his role. The breach of that duty has resulted in significant harm to the university. Breach of conduct, contract, disregard of handbook rules. Most of these are going to be the same, give or take. You're not giving us 32 protections, so we're in trouble. And you're not doing the things that we agreed to with respect to this particular handbook. Intentional interference with Harbaugh's employment. Plaintiff Harbaugh has contractual and business relationships and expectations with the University of Michigan, which are more fully outlined in his employment agreement. At all relevant times, the conference was aware of this relationship and intentionally and improperly interfered with this relationship and expectancy in the ways described above. Invasion of privacy and false light to Plaintiff Harbaugh by implying that he's a cheater, essentially. And you, can, you should do everything that you can to prevent this court. And then we also have the request for that temporary restraining order as a separate document as part of this claim. And I don't think that there's anything new that will, will be a surprise here. So I'm going to skip through this pretty quickly, but again, it's what is the standard for a temporary restraining, uh, restraining order? <clears throat> it is there an overwhelming need to preserve the status quo in light of the university's robust claims against the conference and the damage it would irreparably suffer absent injunctive relief. So court, you can't fix this after the fact we're likely to win this contract case so please make sure that they can't do this suspension. As I said, they didn't get that TRO. And why didn't they get it? Well, as it turns out, the Big Ten filed for its own argument with respect to the TRO request. So the University of Michigan asked for an emergency temporary restraining order on an ex parte basis, which if you've been around here for a while, you know, is just one side getting to argue its point. But the other side basically always gets to try to file an appearance and argue its point itself and a court especially when it's faced with that appearance being filed, is going to not want to do an ex parte decision. It doesn't want to do an ex parte decision anyway. That's an extraordinary use of the court's powers. And so the court's going to be reluctant to do that. But when the other party says, hey, we want to argue this, then the court is almost always going to move it to later. Now, this, this all comes back to whether or not this is fair on the part of the Big Ten. Filing it on a court holiday last Friday while the, while the Michigan Wolverines were in flight, they knew it would be difficult to get a court to even look at this. And then they filed a they filed an appearance. Now, David Schuster here on Twitter says Big Ten took the unusual step of hiring a local lawyer to file an objection. It's unusual in so far as the Big Ten probably doesn't have to do that very often, but it's not unusual in respect of you have been asked for an ex parte TRO. This is how you would fight it if you were the Big Ten. So it's not that unusual. And then it got scheduled for next Friday, i.e. a couple of days from now. Again, a problem for the Saturday game against Maryland, but it is what it is. The wheels of justice move slowly. Um, and so that's where we are right now with respect to the TRO. Michigan and the Big Ten are set to argue, probably have some witness statements, I would imagine, at a real hearing on Friday. But we'll see exactly how the court decides to conduct that hearing. And we'll see where it goes from there. I would say Michigan has a pretty decent shot of winning a preliminary injunction for the suspension of Jim Harbaugh because I don't think they have a great case for actually doing this against Jim Harbaugh. But the irreparable harm question is going to be the most important one because, in general, it is irreparable harm, but football games aren't life-ending kind of things. So we'll see what the court decides to do. I would side with Michigan if, if I were betting on this, but folks, don't bet on, 
don't don't bet on adjudications. It's not wise. And it's still going to be in the hands of one specific judge determining on their own what is fair and what is not fair. So that's really what I've got for you today. What does everybody think on your end for all of this? Let's let's talk about various questions. Is the Big Ten right? Is Michigan right? Uh, obviously, you don't have to like Wild Stallions. I don't like Wild Stallions. I wish this didn't happen with my team. I'm a Michigan Wolverine, as I said. So you can look at that helmet on the on the back wall next to the gaming dino and, and see that I am a Michigan Wolverine. So I am acknowledging that I am clearly on the side of being a Michigan's Michigan favorite on this, but. What do you all think? And let me make sure I get to the, to the current comments and that I didn't miss any here. Callista, thank you so much. I hope you're still in the chat for gifting five home law memberships. Apologies. I didn't see this when it happened, but I really appreciate it. As I said before, it's, it's the, it's what makes this channel go is the support of people like you and the members and, and the super chats and everything else. So I really do appreciate it every time it happens. So thank you so much. Uh, and we did, I think we did look at that one. And Shell, thank you for becoming a new member on the channel. I really appreciate that. I hope you enjoy these conversations. We have a lot of them. Not so much on Michigan football. I hope to not have to talk about this again, but we'll see. Yulia uh, says, sounds like the sportsmanship thing is just a pretext, right? I don't think it's a pretext. I think when you have these kinds of documents, when you're talking about any kind of voluntary association, corporation, or otherwise, if the lawyers get a handle on, this is what I want to do. I want to punish Michigan. I want to get the devil. Go find me how to do that. It's the broadest power that they have, right? We looked at the sportsmanship policy. It is a very broadly written power. Thou shall have the ability to do whatever you like. And it's Michigan that says that has to be read in context with the procedures that govern what a violation of the rule is. But the commissioner says, no, look, the sentence says I can do whatever I like. So what are you talking about? And that's that's a problem for good faith and fair dealing and these various other things. By the time you're arguing that from the state of Michigan's perspective, you're already arguing a more difficult case than just the black letter words on a page. So the Big Ten has the the defense of the words are very broad. You agreed to these very broad words. And so I'm going to use them very broadly. But Michigan has a good case to say that's not how it was intended. That's not how anybody thought it would be used. That's not how it has been used. And so you shouldn't be able to use it on us here. And Harbaugh has an even better case than Michigan because they have no case against him vis-a-vis -vis the evidence that they have. And they don't have the ability to say that the NCAA bylaws and the head coach responsibility rule applies to the Big Ten sportsmanship policy. So Harbaugh has by far the best case. I think Harbaugh wins. I don't know that the University of Michigan does. Emily Aaron says, in my opinion, they need to clarify who is in charge. If the Big Ten can do whatever they want, independent of the NCAA, why do we even have or need the NCAA? Well, the NCAA is a bigger organization and they generally handle all these penalties. For the most part, historically, what you've seen is the conferences kind of defend their own membership against an NCAA investigation, that the, the conference will help whatever university is charged with things to have its own counsel and to fight these various fights. In this particular case, the other coaches and ADs in the Big Ten got so mad at Michigan for this that the commissioner had to listen to them, at least according to the way the story goes, rather than defend Michigan from the NCAA investigation. So it's very rare for a conference to go and say, the NCAA says it can prove this, and so we're going to punish you because they say they can prove this. Ordinarily, you'd say, okay, good luck, university, and let us know if we can be of any help. Uh, let's see here. I want to make sure I grab something. Emily says, also, Big Ten was like, we talked to all your opponents about this, and they said it was fine. Like, I'm sure they did. Well, that's, that's part of the problem, right, is that there is an inherent conflict of interest with you should take out Michigan. And I think this really only presents in this particular situation, which is to say – 
you have a first year commissioner without a lot of history with the conference and you have a team accused of this that has basically gone into undefeated in the conference for the last three years. And so that has everybody kind of angry at them anyway and looking for any kind of advantage they can find. And they found this kind of legalistic advantage if they can get the Big Ten to go through with it. I don't think that's an ultimate winner in the courts. And I think it's worthy of conversation as I've done now for two and a half hours here in virtual legality. But I'm not going to tell you that the Big Ten doesn't have a leg to stand on. Their arguments are sound. I just think Michigan's arguments are better. Marty asks, would the judge hearing the case need to recuse if they are a University of Michigan law grad? No, I don't think so. It's not an inherent conflict where you graduated from law school. I can tell you from having graduated Michigan law school that there are plenty of non-Michigan fans that go to the law school, right? That fandom tends to associate more with the undergraduate experience than anything else. And a lot of the lawyers and training that I went to school with at University, University of Michigan Law retained their fandom of wherever they went to undergrad. Um, it just so happened that I was already a Michigan fan when I went to Michigan Law School, but I don't think you'd have to recuse for that. And honestly, a lot of Michigan judges are going to be Michigan law grads. So I don't know that it's, it's something that you can do from a kind of viability or logistical perspective. Does anybody have any other questions? If a head coach is in the embodiment of a school, are schools the embodiment of the conference? Can schools be punished for wrongdoing by the conference? I don't think that they would like it if you applied it that way. Uh, but no, I, I, they don't really think Jim Harbaugh is the embodiment of the University of Michigan. It's just that you can see in that order of the letters as we read them that Michigan's argument that they couldn't bootstrap that responsibility provision was deemed to be accurate by the Big Ten's council and said, we're going to have to do this a different way and say, okay, we're not punishing Jim Harbaugh. It just so happens that Jim Harbaugh is the embodiment of the University of Michigan. Now, maybe that's okay from a kind of technical perspective. It's not okay if you're Jim Harbaugh because that's still money for his job and that's still what he cares about. And he's being punished for something he specifically didn't do. The law really doesn't like that so much. The problem is that the Big Ten cannot tie any behavior to any breach of the rule as the rules are NCAA rules, not Big Ten rules. Right, well, and they, they have that sentence in that own letter that says, we don't care if it's found to not be a violation of the NCAA rules. We find this to be a violation of sportsmanship right now, but it's really not designed to, to take whole cloth concepts that are adjacent to NCAA rules. If the NCAA rule is determined to not apply in this particular scenario, you have to question ultimate fairness and judgment on whether or not Michigan should be penalized for it, or are they just being essentially uh, entrepreneurial legal actors, right? Lawyers are paid lots of money to go find where the edges of rules are and where you might be able to do something that maybe isn't anticipated by the way the rules are written. I'm not saying that's the best way to run a program. I'm not saying I like any of this about Wild Stallions, but we can't just penalize people for finding the, the holes in the way that rules are written because honestly, we want that to happen. That's a part of the process of tying that up. It's a part of the process of getting amendments that revise things and clear up where the boundaries of the rules should be, not just to have them squashed for people that are enterprising. Dennis asks, does a ruling on the TRO have any impact? Should Michigan file a lawsuit in the future? Apologies, I'm not familiar with the process. Uh, this will all be part of one lawsuit, essentially. The TRO is the first step that didn't get given in time. So it's almost certainly going to be a preliminary injunction hearing rather than a TRO hearing. Emergency TROs are difficult to get. Courts don't like to exert their powers that way. They don't like to only hear from one side before they do so. So there will be a preliminary injunction hearing, and that will lead into more of the lawsuit. We actually read through the more fulsome lawsuit document as part of this video. So I think ultimately what you're going to see happen is that 
and this depends on how that hearing goes, the preliminary injunction might well be granted, if only because in the case of the Big Ten putting the suspension on a court holiday while the, the parties were in flight, I think that you could convince a court that that was unclean hands, that that was a deliberately bad act designed to avoid adjudication, and that the Big Ten should at bare minimum not get the free suspension that they got last weekend, and you can get an injunction for maybe one game, and then we can relook at this in a merits-based court case. It, it's really a number of ways that this can go, and the judges have wide discretion to decide exactly what they're going to do with this. So I don't want to make a, I don't want to make a bet on that. Also, because I'm not a litigator. So if you want that, you're going to have to go find a, a Michigan litigator that's talking about this issue on YouTube. But I think that what you'll see is a preliminary injunction hearing. I suspect Michigan will win that, but it's not a guarantee. And then if they do, things kind of change from there as to how far the parties go in a in a legal sense. Jeremy, thank you so much for gifting 10 Hogla memberships to the channel. I really appreciate that. That is so awesome, and I appreciate the support. Jeremy's been a longtime supporter of the channel. I really appreciate it. Kurt at Uncivil Law asks, do you know how much we care about you and love you, Richard? I do not. Thank you, Kurt. I really appreciate that as well. It's, it's nice to get well wishes. I know that this is a passionate topic for a number of people in this space and outside, so I wanted to at least talk about the legal documents here because I think there's a lot more going on than what might be suggested by the athletics article, right? When you talk about spare the drama, it's like at some point drama is justified. And I think honestly, if you're a rival of Michigan, I know I said this as part of the video, but if you're a rival of Michigan, I think you should be upset about this primarily because it gives Michigan a certain hook to hang its hat on that it is being victimized here, that it is in part a victim of arrest of judgment and mob justice. And if you hate Michigan, if you think Michigan's a cheater, if you want to see them really raked over the coals, I don't think you should want them to have this essentially on their side because I think they are justified in being this dramatic about this and in feeling like they're they being put upon by mob justice. So if I were an Ohio State fan, I can understand wanting to see this happen this way. But I think ultimately cooler heads should prevail and you should want to see them punished the right way, as it were, going through the rules in a normal way and getting to the end of things and being hit as hard as they should be hit for whatever happened here when the evidence finally bears out. It's just my opinion, of course, and I am inc incredibly compromised on this, as I've said. So thank you. All right. Okay, everybody, I think I'm just about done here, unless anybody has any more questions or things that I missed or things that you were interested in as we went through the documents. Let me know. I will leave it up for another couple minutes before I sign off. But I want to thank you all for being here with me today and for having an impromptu virtual legality. I wasn't anticipating this to go two and a half hours, but I knew I set up a lot of documents. So I'm glad that we were able to do this together. Apologies in advance if I went a little too fast through any of those documents. I'm still working on language speed as I get back up to speed after everything this year. But I really do like having these conversations. And obviously, it's a topic of passionate interest for me. So thank you again, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful week and weekend. I think I've got all the super chats. If I missed any, let me know. But otherwise, I will see you on the next episode of Virtual Legality, the next Hangouts and Headlines, or just later on the channel. I'll be around. Thank you, everybody. See you then. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.